Welcome, welcome, welcome to the Bob Left Sets podcast. My guest this week is musician extraordinaire Wadi Wachtel. Wadi, good to have you here. Hey, Bob, how are you? You've seen him. He's the guy with the long, curly hair, most famously with Linda Ronstadt, but seemingly with everybody in the Southern California scene. And you even played with Brian Ferry on the Bright Strip Beer, which is one of my favorite Brian Ferry yeah, albums. Okay, thank you. Okay, you're from Queens, right? True. Yeah. So what do your parents do for a living? My dad was in the sh uh, shoe business, uh, ladies' shoes. My mom was a mom who unfortunately died when I was pretty young. But Really? How, how young were you? Six years old. Okay, your father is in what level of the shoe business? Retail. So he owns like a store, he works in a store? He and his brother owned a shoe store. Yeah, uh, okay. they, they owned one in, uh, in Jackson Heights. It's one of the creepy things. I remember as a kid walking on the main street near where I lived. We go in every store, and I went into the shoe store when I wasn't actually buying something. Freaked me out. It's like cause I only went to this story where they had stride rights. Oh, if, stride right. Exactly. Yeah. I remember those. Yeah. Yeah, which yeah. was kids' shoes if I wanted to buy something. So your father owned a store. Your mother died at age six. Yeah. Did your father get remarried? He Yeah, he did once unsuccessfully when I was about 16 and then – um, then again, when I, when I first moved to LA, uh, right around I was 20 years old, he married a wonderful woman and they were together till he passed. Oh, okay. And how many kids in your family? Just my brother and myself. And your brother's Jimmy? Yeah. Famous art designer. Very famous art designer. Okay. Who's older? Jimmy is older. Jimmy's older. Yeah. So to what degree were you influenced by him? Well, we were, <laughs> it's hard to answer that. I don't know. Um, that's a hard one to answer. I've never been asked that question. Uh, well, he taught me a lot about uh, – he had a big jazz record collection. Okay. And we were both into the heavy, heavy into the rock and roll records, the uh, doo-wop stuff. And uh, he used to bring me to uh, – there was a, a DJ in New York called Jocko. I don't know if you remember the Jocko radio show. Right. Uh, and he used to he, – my brother brought me with him in, into the city one day to go to a show one of those rock and roll shows, which I'd never seen before. So my brother was, was musically influential, actually, in my life. Even though I was, I, I saw a guitar on television before my mom died, and uh, it just flipped me out. And I looked at my mother when I was five years old, and I said, what is that? What's that guy doing? And she said, uh, I said, what is he holding? What is that thing? And she says, that's a guitar. And, and I went, okay, that's what I want. And she goes, what? What do you mean that's what you want? You're five years old. And I said, that's what I want to do. That's what I'm going to do. I'm going to play the guitar. And I was already attracted to music. I was always singing tunes and you know, learning learning songs and imitating singers and stuff like that. But once, once I saw that guitar on television, it blew me away. So that was it for me. Okay, how old were you, were you when you actually got a guitar? Nine. Okay, let's go back. Your brother is how much older than you are? Three and a half years older than me. Okay, yeah. and so your father's essentially a single parent. Yeah. And he's working all the time. Yeah. So you basically have free reign. I had free reign, and uh, that was all <laughs> working well until I wound up getting tonsillitis and realized, and, th and then I was home for, you know, almost two weeks and realized, you know, this is hipper than going to school. I like this better. <laughs> <laughs> so I became quite a serious truant uh, from then on, really, and actually wound up being the worst truant on record in New York City at one point. 
Okay, I have to ask, how much school did you miss? Well, I, <laughs> I, I, I didn't miss enough to where I was never set back a grade. Right. You know, but as it went on and on, eventually I had to go to, I don't know if you remember, a, a place in New York, a school for young professionals, it was called, Quintano's. I, I don't know this. Don't know, it, was, it was right near Carnegie Hall, and someone said to me, you know, <laughs> you should try Quintano's because, you know, you're never in school and you're never going to graduate. I went, yeah, probably right. So I went, I talked my father into letting me go there. And and it was a great, the first day I was there, I met uh, Mary from the Shangri-Las. Was going wow. There, and Sal Minio had gone there. Patty Duke had gone to this place. And uh, so I went there and wound up, <laughs> wound up being truant from there too. Because uh, at that point, my band that I had, we wound up going to Newport, Rhode Island. Uh, we got an offer. We were playing in the village one night, and a guy heard us play. He said, would you like to go to Newport, Rhode Island? I went, wow, yeah, sure. Let's go. So we went up there, loved it, and we wound up staying up there. We'd go for a weekend. Then we'd stretch it into like a three-day week, four-day weekend. Dad, I'm going to be up here for the week. You know, it's like, what is it about at school? Don't worry, I'll be fine. And, and so... Came back down and eventually did graduate high school. Okay. So your father is single parent. Any religious background, any of that? Jewish. And did you get a bar mitzvah? Oh, yeah. Sure. Okay. Yeah, it was so my, you, so the I whole call thing. that my first professional gig, really. Because, <laughs> you know, you got paid, you know. <laughs> exactly. I got up there saying my ass off and uh, okay, so if you're for it. A Jewish background, in addition to the bar mitzvah, usually summer camp. Did you go to summer camp? Absolutely, yeah. And so were you a performer at summer camp? Somewhat, yeah. Now and then, yeah. yeah. Okay. I was always a ham, you know what I mean? So I'd, I would do these embarrassing parts and plays and things like that and, you know, stuff like that. And then, then when the guitar came along, then I would force that down everybody's throat. You know. Okay, so, so you're nine when you get your first guitar. Yeah. And how does that happen? Well, I just kept bugging my father about it, you know, since that time, you know, before my mom died. I kept saying, guitar, guitar, and he kept saying, no, no. And finally, by nine years old, he gave in and bought me this little Kamiko, it was called, this little crummy little guitar, but this there was it was. A, this was a folk guitar, acoustic guitar? It was, a, it was acoustic guitar, but it wasn't a folk guitar. It wasn't a round hole guitar. It had F-holes and stuff. I didn't know what a folk guitar was. I never... Okay, well, I, all I remember music. is back in the days of the Hootenanny days before the Beatles, you'd get these folk guitars. They would cost like $30 with really wide necks and nylon strings. Yeah, right, right. Okay, I so what was yours like? Mine was, no, mine was steel string, and it was meant for guitar players. It wasn't a folk guitar. Like I said, I never even knew what a folk guitar was till I basically moved to L.A., and everyone said, you got to get an acoustic guitar. I go, what, what's that? You know, I had Gibsons. I had F-hole jazz guitars. What do they call them? Uh, Oh, there's a term for it, but you know, the, you know, not a folk guitar. <laughs> right. Okay. That's so it, you, that's what you grew up in New York. You call them folk guitar. Right. Right. Okay. So you had this guitar. Did you take lessons? Yeah. Yeah. He got me the guitar, and then he got a teacher for me. A great guy named Gene Dell, who lived in the Bronx, would come to our house once a week. And the first day he came, I was holding it the way I would because I'm left-handed. So I'm holding it like this, and he goes, "All right, first of all, it goes like this." And I went. But but I'm I'm left-handed. He goes, not anymore. <laughs> You're gonna play it this way. I went, eh, it's fine. So that happened, and then I started taking my lessons. And shortly after we started, he realized that my ear was really good. You know, very I could learn stuff very quickly by ear. 
And he said, you're not reading. I said, well, I am reading, but once I get through a piece, I learn it. So, you know, we, so I said, why don't you start, if you would, why don't you record a song for me? We had a tape recorder. I said, will you leave me some songs to learn? So he'd give me like Lullaby of Birdland or September in the Rain. He'd play it. And then I could listen to it and learn it that way, aside from reading the music as well. So, you know, I studied with him for several years. That went on for a while. Then I about, when I was 14, 15, kind of lost interest in it for a little while. That's when Dad got married. Uh, and we moved to a place called Jamaica Estates, if you right. remember this joint. And it, it was, <laughs> it just didn't work. This, this marriage was not meant to be. And What's it like being the son of a guy who gets remarried and it's not going to work? I mean, what are you thinking and where does this leave you? Well, you know, it was all kind of bizarre to me. And, but fortunately, I was so involved in music that it didn't matter to me, you know. And, and, and again, when you brought up camp, Jimmy and I would go to camp each summer, you know, because New York was so horribly hot. And my dad's dream was to make sure the boys had a good time for the summer, so away we'd go. And, and I remember when <laughs> we left Jackson Heights and when Harry, my dad, came up to get us, we drove to... Uh, well, we went to Jamaica. Oh, excuse me. We, we then moved to Jamaica Estates. Right. Then when we left that summer, we came back. We drove right to Forest Hills. <laughs> it was over. It was over. That's really strange. Well, where was the camp? Uh, upstate New York, Adirondacks. Okay. Yeah. So he brings you back. He leaves behind all your friends and everything, and you're in a totally yeah. new house. Yeah. Well, I didn't have that many friends anyway. You know. Well, you didn't have any friends because your personality or you're so deep into the music? Yeah, both. <laughs> you know, but and and we you know, in Jamaica, I didn't know anybody there. You know, we weren't there that long, so right. I was commuting every day into. I think I was still going to Newtown High School, maybe or something. I don't know. It's all a little vague at this point, but but nonetheless, we moved to Forest Hills and then went started going to Forest Hills High School. Okay, so going back to the original teacher, Dell, um, you learned how to read music. Mm -hmm. Do you still read music to yeah. this day? Yeah. So if you play a session and someone lays it out, you can read right off the uh, page. Yeah, I'm not a great reader at all. I, I'm, I'm okay at it. Uh, guys that I work with can read anything. They're incredible at it. I, because of my ear, I started just taking that road with it. So if I hear something once, I learn it. And, but, yeah, I can still read. Okay, so then when you're taking lessons, what he's teaching you, scales, chords, what? The, both of those, plus we were working out of a, there's a, 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 a course called the Mel Bay. Of course, I had the Mel Bay book. All right, well, so I went through all those books. I only, I had stopped at the first. I had to go to the second. <laughs> right. Yeah, well, I went through one through nine. Well, that's why I'm not a guitarist. You see? <laughs> yeah. And, um, and then he was teaching me Bach piano etudes. We would play, you know, two-part inventions, they're called. So I would read the top line. He would play the bottom line. It was like the two hands of a piano. And it was great. It was really cool. But that was one of the things when he said, you're not reading. I went, well, hey, man, I, I am reading. I said, you want me to play your part? I know both parts. I said, I get through it and I learn it. So, you know, halfway during the week, I said, oh, well, I might as well learn his part, too. So here, switch parts with me. I'll play yours, too. He goes, oh, man. So he, and he realized that my ear was going to be the, the, the ruler of my Life. Okay, the big issue when you take guitar lessons is whether you, or any music lessons, is whether you practice or not. Yeah. Did you practice? I practiced, I went through my lessons. 
You know, I didn't I didn't sit there and grind it out, grind it out, grind it out. I practice more now because I've been trying to learn a certain type of guitar playing. But what are you trying to learn? Uh, now? It's Hawaiian slack key guitar. It's called, and it's just this beautiful finger picking stuff that uh, that the Hawaiians learned. So your idea, developed. how much work do you put into that today? Oh, uh, anywhere from an hour a day, a couple hours a day, or you know, I'm constantly listening to it, trying to, because I I grew up again. Without a folk guitar, you know, so I, I grew up with a pick in my hand. I was never a finger picker. And uh, I started listening when I realized on Beatle Records, these guys are they're using their fingers a little bit. I got to try to figure that out. But I never really had to do it much until working with Stevie Nicks and the band that she brought me back into. Um, there was someone else, when we do Landslide, someone else would play Landslide. But then they they left the band. <laughs> so uh, Suddenly you were Mr. Landslide. I, and I went, um, Landslide? How does that go? Oh, because Stevie said to me, do you know how to play Landslide? And of course. I'm going, oh, yeah, sure, of course. <laughs> how do you play Landslide? You know, how do you play Landslide? And I said to my friend Brett Tuggle, who was still in the band, and he would normally play it. I said, how do you play Landslide? He said, well, there's a lot to it. And he started to play the song for me. Oh, yeah, that song. Yeah, I know that song. Didn't know it. You know, so it took a while, and I. How long did it take you to do it? Well, to do it well, it yeah. took me, I don't know, a couple of months of getting my fingers to do it correctly. Yeah. And the first time I did it with Stevie, we went away to do these radio spots. She said to me, "You know, landslide, right?" I went, "Yeah, sure." And she goes, "Well, I got to go do these radio spots. Uh, you want to do them with me?" I went, "Yeah, I'd love to." So we went up to Northern California and do these eight a.m. radio bits and play landslide and. I was butchering it. And finally, Stevie said to me, we went to dinner that night. She goes, you know, Wadi, I got to tell you, that was the absolute worst landslide I've <laughs> ever heard in my life. And I went, yeah, I totally agree. I'm sorry. And uh, and then it came time to where Brett Tuggle was out of the band, and and I had to learn it. So I sat in my house and just practiced when and it went on for a while, and my wife would walk by the room, and she's going, oh, that was a good landslide today, and I'm going, oh, thanks, honey, you know, and I was really nervous about it, and we got down to rehearsal, and we're going through the show, and all of a sudden, it's time for landslide, and I'm sweating it, you know, I'm really <laughs> worried. The last thing she ever said to me was, that was the worst thing I've ever heard. So we start it, we play it, she sings it all the way through, she looks at me, she goes, it's beautiful. And, all right. Oh, my girl. Okay, so when you're playing the guitar and you're a teenager, uh, you know, your teacher is bringing out all this classical stuff. Well, but, some. Yeah, but, you know, melody stuff. And, and, but don't you want to play the stuff that's on the radio? Well, again, yeah, I did. Well, one of the, the, the thing that made me realize I had this ear was I heard tequila, you know, by the champs, you know. And as he's teaching me, there's a thing called a one major chord. And I played the one major chord, and then I... But wait, just because, I don't know, what does one major chord well, mean? Well, it, it just means, it's just a form of a chord, you know. If, if you don't have like a bar chord? You yeah, you bar, like a, you bar with the first finger, and, right. you, and you place these three right, exactly. certain frets. Yeah, right. And that's your basic one major. Okay, I never heard it called that. It's Show like an E know. chord. If exactly. Yeah, it's an but E chord, but up, up right. here. Right. So, so I, I was on the fifth fret, say. Fifth fret, and then I just accidentally went to the third fret and played the same chord, and I heard... That one and that one, and I went, hey, wait a minute, that's that song, Tequila. That's what it is. So I went, dun, 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 and I went, 
all right, I'm playing that song, man. This is great, you know. So I went from that, and then I heard Rebel Rouser, Dwayne Eddy, and started realizing, oh, I can figure these things out, you know. And so one after the other, I started just learning tunes. So it's like that. You know? And were you a record collector, a radio Well, addict? like I said about my brother, my brother had a, uh, we, we were both had a bunch of rock and roll records for sure. But uh, this is pre-Beatles, you know. We right. had, uh, you know, Elvis. I was playing guitar before Elvis came out, you know. I, when I first started playing guitar, out came Blue Suede Shoes by Carl Perkins, you know. And then, then okay. Elvis happened. Okay, since I can look it up on the internet, you're how old? What year were you born? 47. 47. So you were literally playing before Elvis became big. Yeah, so in 57, I think when Elvis came out, I was already had a guitar in my hand for a year. Okay. You know, but uh, but aside from the rock and roll records, Jimmy had an enormous jazz collection. And and I loved that too. So I would sit home and just put on a record and learn it and put on another record and learn, l listen to the stuff. And then uh, there was a, a a guy named Mickey Baker. If you remember Mickey and no. Sylvia? Oh, yeah, sure. Love is Strange. Mickey yeah, of course. Baker yeah, yeah, yeah. was a guitar player. He wrote a book about how to improvise, how to play, how to improvise. I'm dying to learn. How, to, how do I do that? How do I do <laughs> right, right. that? And so the, the whole first... Part of the book was all about chords and this and that. The second, second part was about improvisation. And the, there was this disclaimer saying, well, nobody can teach you how to improvise. I went, well, what the fuck did I buy this book for then? And, but in that page it said, what I suggest you do is learn every solo you like. Listen to horn players. Listen to jazz players. Listen to guys. Any solo you like, learn it. Learn everything you like. And eventually you'll start generating your own stuff. So that was it for me. I just sat home, and that's what you know reinforced right. the truancy. I just I had a job to do now, you know. So I would sit there, put on Miles Davis and Lou Donaldson, or you know Donald Byrd, or anybody, and just listen to the solos, find one I like, learn it, find another one I like, learn it. There was Johnny Smith, these good, great jazz guitar players too to emulate. So I did a lot of. So when you when you're doing this, is the dream to be a professional musician? You know, I didn't, it was just to learn. It was just to learn. I, I knew this was all I was going to do. You know, the, I didn't even know that you could do it as a profession, really. You know, it didn't even, that didn't matter to me. I was just driven to, to learn music on this instrument. And, um, and then singing and then the vocals and, and you know, doo-wop stuff started mattering more and more and more. <clears throat> but my basis was guitar. And like I said to my father, he'd say, you know, you, you should do that as a hobby. I'm going, this is it for me. This is, uh, this is my hobby. And this is going to be all I do. I can't, you know, what am I going to do? Be a, he said, you should be a doctor. I'm going, I don't think so. You know? <laughs> <laughs> Typical wanna, Jewish family. I want to play guitar, you know. Okay, so how old were you when you formed your first band? I was about 14 or 15 when a guy that I was going to school with said, Bobby Wachtel, right? I went, yeah. He goes, you play guitar, right? I went, yeah. He goes, I've got a little band. You know, uh, you want to work? I went, yeah, that's a great idea. I never thought of doing that. Sure. And it was just, there wasn't even a bass in the band. It was just accordion, drums, uh, trumpet, and, and me. And eventually we got the accordion out of there and we got a vibe player, but still no bass. <laughs> and... Uh, but we did society gigs, you know, weddings and bar mitzvahs and dances and things like that. And who sang? No, it was instrumentals. It was all instrumental. And what kind of money were you making? Uh, 20 bucks a night. 
Well, 20 bucks a night when you're like 14, that's oh, yeah. a lot of money. Absolutely, yeah. What'd you spend the money on? We'd go, we, we would uh, take the subway into New York and, you know, go to the arcades and just, you know, exactly. waste the money, you know, we could buy a hot dog or two and throw it into ski ball or whatever. You know, God, that's I remember the first thing. You know, go with my friends into the city when you're 14. That's what you do. Right? Go to the arcade, yeah, etc. Get a slice. Exactly. Yeah. So, <laughs> okay, but you still playing that same guitar? No. The great thing was, the second year, uh, you know, nine years old, he gave me this. My dad gave me that Kamiko guitar. At 10 years old, he bought me this beautiful Gibson L7. It's called. It's a single cutaway jazz guitar. Just gorgeous. So I was in heaven. I couldn't believe it. And shortly after that, got an amp, got a little pickup for the guitar, and that's what I was playing. So, so okay. in the band, I had my little tiny Fender amp and my big fat Gibson jazz guitar, and that's what I was playing. And then I went at summer camp. Right. <clears throat> this guy had a Les Paul, and I just— I had a Les Paul at summer camp? Yeah, yeah. Wow. I was, I was 11. <laughs> and I saw this black, just like Neil Young was like, right. black three pickup, Bigsby on it. What's that? <laughs> Man, that's great. I got to, and this guy couldn't play at all. Right. I mean, I was, you know, I've been playing for two years already, so I can really, you know, play better than him. He was a lovely guy. Um, but so when I came back from camp that summer, that's all I wanted was Les Paul, Les Paul, Les Paul. My dad's gone, no, man, you know, I can't, you know, can't afford it. You know, there's a shoe store going here. My grandmother, who was uh, my mom's mother, she she had a real attitude, this woman. I, I think I'll, I got a lot of her in me. And uh, she, my dad grew up with a friend of his named Harry Waxman, who was a very, turned out to be a very wealthy builder in New York, built all these communities and stuff like that. And, Always said he'd take care of my father, blah, blah, blah. And my grandmother always had this thing. She goes, why don't you, you know, Bobby, you can't, your dad can't afford this guitar you keep talking about. So why don't you write to your nasty Uncle Harry? <laughs> why don't you write to him and ask him to get it for you? I'm going, really? You think? She goes, yeah, write him a letter. He's got tons of money. Said, okay, so I wrote this letter. And about three or four days later, it must have been longer than that, but not much longer. My dad calls me at home after school. He goes, get over here. That means come to the shoes. All right. Get over here now. What? Just get over here right now. Uh, okay. What? What did I do? And I go to the store. He sees me. He goes, get into the, there's a, in a shoe store, there's a, they call it the dye room in the back room where they dye the shoes and they, you know, change things. Get in the dye room. All right, all right. Take it easy. What? What? Just get in there. All right. So he comes up to me, and he's, I'm sitting there. He goes, did you write to your Uncle Harry? Um, <laughs> well, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. He said, you wrote to your Uncle Harry behind my back and asked him to get you a guitar? He says, what is the matter with you? What kind of manners do you have? Who do you think? And while he's yelling at me, I'm looking around, you know, trying to avoid his eyes. So I'm looking around this little room, and in the corner of the room, I see the head of a guitar case. <laughs> and all of a sudden, I went, wait a minute. What's going on here? 
and he's yelling at me, but he's starting to smile. I went, what's going on here? What is that? He goes, you better go look at that. So I open it up, and then it's this Les Paul. Uh, not the one I wanted, unfortunately. However, there it was. It was a, they called it a TV model, Les Paul, yellow. Uh, what, what was the difference between this one and the one you wanted? Well, I saw this black, nasty-looking one, you know, three pickups with a Bigsby on it, one cutaway. Just like Neil Young's guitar. Right, right. I understand. This but what one, was I understand what that is. I didn't know there were that many looked, different ones. Well, yeah, there's a lot of this one was what they call the T V model and it was it had two cutaways. It was a lighter guitar. Right. It, it wasn't as heavy duty a job, had uh less pickups on it. But there it was. It was my solid body guitar. So I was in heaven, you know. And uh so I loved it. So I showed up to my little society band gig with this thing. Went, Whoa, what's that? Oh, that's my new guitar, man. And, it's great. Uh, okay, so then you're playing the society gigs at the time in the early '60s or late, yeah. late late '50s rock and roll. Early '60s is pop tracks and folk, and so no before folk. before the Beatles, you play in the society gig and society band and what else? Jazz gigs, you know, jazz jazz tunes and uh, standards. That's uh, that's what it was. That's what we did for a living. You know, we played almost every weekend with this little band, the Nocturnes, and. Uh, you know, we, you know, that was it. You know, had a, they call it a fake book. You know what a fake book is? Sure. Yeah. Explain to my audience what a fake a book is. A fake book is this gigantic loose leaf book that has every every standard ever written in it. And uh, it's what you do when you're playing society gigs, when you're playing what they call casuals or like weddings and bar mitzvahs. You have this enormous book and someone will go, go to, go to 230. Go to page 230, and uh, it's, you know, Satin Doll. Go to, go to 221, September the Rain. You know, it, a million songs in it. So we that's what we did. We, you know, everything was I just remember the fake, the fake book was a way, it gave you the chords and the lead without buying the real sheet music. Right, yeah, that's right. Exactly. Yeah, it was a collect, yeah, it was, it was probably a bogus collection exactly. of all these tunes. Right. Yeah, instead of having to go instead buy. Instead of going on the internet like you do now. Yeah, or going to the sheet music store. <laughs> right, of and course. And buying 5,000 songs. Right, and they were like $3 a piece. They were as expensive yeah. as an album. Yeah, yeah. So... You're playing in the society gig, and that happens all the way to the Beatles? Yeah, pretty much so, yeah. And uh, right before that, and Beach Boys and Beatles kind of happened around the same time. I think right. Beach Boys were a little, a little earlier, right? A little right? earlier. So I was really taken by that. And, and again, at, at summer camp, I met some guys there who also loved music and sang. So we started every night. We'd go down... We, we were waiters in this camp at that at that age, and we went to this camp long enough. Right, you graduated to that yeah. level. Yeah. Waiters, junior counselors, the whole thing. Yeah, right. So we, after cleanup, after the dinner meal, we'd go down to the baseball diamond and sing doo-wop tunes, you know. We'd do Remember Then by the Earls or, you know, I, I can't even think of any titles right now, but doo-wop tunes and just a cappella stuff. And really got into that, and then Beach Boy songs and... and and then Beatles happened. But then I'd come back and I'd still be with the society band. But th at that point, we had put together with my friends who lived in New Rochelle, this other band, playing surfing music, you know, surfing instrumentals. How and did you know started, people from New Rochelle? Well, I met them in camp. Okay. Yeah. And uh, so I'd go up to there and we'd practice our surfing tunes. We started you know, doing a lot. It was all instrumental still. 
Then we started adding some Beach Boy vocals and stuff. But then, then Beatles happened and everything. A little bit slower. The Beach Boys, are you, with a band with the friends from New Rochelle, are you playing gigs with them? We started to do some gigs up, up in New England, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Not so, New England, in uh, Westchester. Okay. So yeah. how do you become aware of the Beatles? The, way, the same way we all did, Ed Sullivan Show. Okay. Right? And you're watching on Sunday night and you're thinking what? I'm, my mind is in a million pieces on the floor in front of me. I've never seen anything like this. You know, we all we went through Elvis right. and Everly's. Everly's was like the most incredible thing. I said, wow, it's better than Elvis, two of them. <laughs> and the best-looking things, best-looking guys I've ever seen with these enormous guitars. So it was Everly's, Everly's, and all of a sudden there's Beatles with their haircuts and their hip suits, and they're playing these tunes. It was all over, man. That was it. And from then on, the society band started doing Beatles songs. Really? Oh, yeah, absolutely, yeah. You Still without to. a bass. Without a bass. Yeah, without a bass. That's sure. right. <laughs> Still no bass, yeah. So the society band is doing Beatles, but to what degree do the Beatles energize you and say, well, you know, I want to go in this direction or anything like that? Completely. They, I, I, at that point, what I have to say, when this happened... We were now living in Forest Hills. We had left Jamaica. It was my brother and myself and my dad living in this apartment building in Queens, in Forest Hills. So Beatles have come out. It's all you can think about. And, and again, I'm learning every tune. You know, I'm at home listening to every, every song and every album, learning every song. And then one day I'm hearing... We lived in this place. There was a building here, a big awning here, and another building here. This is in Forest Hills on Austin Street. And I went out one day, left the, left my place, cutting school, of course, and I heard guitar playing coming out of one of the apartments. I went, what the hell? What's that? So it was in the other building. So I went into the other building and went from floor to floor, walking down each hallway till I found the place where it was coming out of. Knocked on the door. Big big guy answers the, answers the door. Heavy set cat. He's got a suit and tie on. You know, the tie's open, but I went, are you, uh, are you playing guitar in here? He goes, yeah. I went, oh yeah? I said, well, my name is Bobby Wachtel and uh, I can help you. You need help. <laughs> and I, because I, I could hear what he was doing. I said, you need help, and I can help you, man. I play guitar. He goes, yeah? What's your name? He says, Leslie Weinstein. <laughs> uh, okay, cool. So Leslie and I became brothers, and uh, we all lived in the same building, you know. So he knew my dad. I knew his mom and his dad and his brother, and he knew Jim, my brother Jimmy very well. And, and uh, I taught Leslie how to play, and... For those people who don't know, that's Leslie West. Yeah, and I was going to say, he became, all of a sudden, I, on the radio one day, hear Mississippi Queen by this guy, Leslie West. I'm going, wait a minute. <laughs> and Leslie, this, this all relates back to the, the guitar story. Just for one second. Why is he dressed up with a suit? Because Leslie worked at the jewelry exchange on 47th. Ah. You know? Because I said, how come you're all dressed up? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and he said, well, I work, I work at the Diamond Exchange, you know. 
We'll take a quick break and come back with more of my conversation with guitar virtuoso Wadi Wachtel, recorded live at the TuneIn Studios in Venice, California. It's so great having musicians here on the podcast. I'm sure you enjoyed Shirley Manson of Garbage and my interview with Moby at the LA Times Festival of Books. This week, Wadi Wachtel told some great stories about working in the studio with Linda Ronstadt and the Everly Brothers. Whether you come for the music, the tech business, or otherwise, be the first to hear next week's episode of the podcast by subscribing on TuneIn, Apple Podcasts, or your podcast player of choice. While you're there, please be sure to rate and review. Okay, let's get back to my conversation with Wadi Wachtel. Okay, so you were telling the story. So I had my, still had my Les Paul, but I wanted Beatle guitars now, you know. I right. wanted a country gentleman. I wanted a Rickenbacker. So I got the Rickenbacker somehow. I don't remember even how. I was stealing money from my father probably. And sold Leslie, or gave Leslie my Les Paul. Really? And uh, he was supposed to have bought it, but I don't think we ever exchanged any money on it. And that was the guitar when you first saw Leslie West play, and that was my guitar he was playing. You know, this this yellow little double cutaway Les Paul. I was a huge fan of the first album, which was called Mountain with Leslie West. It was the second album that had Mississippi Queen. Was that right? It had, it had Baby I'm Down. It was on some Columbia Pictures label. I went to see them at the Fillmore in the fall of 69. I was a big Mountain fan. Oh, wow. Well. So, okay. So we put his first band together, The Vagrants. Right. was Leslie's first band. And it was Larry, his brother Larry, a great singer named Peter Sabatino, another guy named Jerry... Ooh, I just forgot his name. And they needed a drummer, so they didn't have a drummer yet. So I said, well, I play a little drums. So I played drums till we found their drummer, Roger. So And we played the scene in the, in the city. We played right. some gigs, you know, as the vagrants, you know, with me on drums. It was like, okay, but he's got a band, and he's starting down the road. What are you doing? Well, at that point, I was very, very... Uh, Annoyed that you know, well, now Leslie's got a gig, and I can't, <laughs> exactly. I can't, I can't even walk into Atlantic Records. You know, I can't get arrested. You know, uh, musically, and so, well, like I said, I had put bands together in Newport. I, I, had, I had this band from New York, and I went. This was all now, late sixties, and the draft board was yelling for me. You know, it was time to go be drafted and I wasn't about to go in the army so um, we had to move we had to get out of there I kept missing physicals and so we moved to Connecticut to go to college to get a deferment with this I had a band that my my same band from New York the guys from New Rochelle no 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 this was the a band society that, band this the, actually the society band broke up yeah I'm getting out of context here. right and when I was in high school I met some other guys. I wanted to put together a, a different band, and I didn't want to keep going to New Rochelle. So I met a, a guy who's a guitar player. Convinced him he should be the bass player. We met. We heard a great drummer, who was in some other band, and we convinced him to come play with us. And we found a, a friend who played organ. So we had this little four-piece band, and that's what we went to Newport with originally. And that band lasted up until we got to Connecticut, avoiding the draft. And all of a sudden, one day, they all just quit me. They all just said, we're out of this. We're leaving. We're done. We're done because we don't want to play music anymore. Well, they don't want, yeah, they don't want to, they don't want to be where they are. One of them was in love with a girl. 
who we had met along the way. He wanted to go be with her, play with her. Um, my friend, my lifelong bass player friend decided he'd had enough, wanted to quit. And so I was just stuck and moved back to New York for a while. Eventually put another band together with some people I knew from Newport that we'd met. I took my bass player with me again, and we managed to put another band together and went back up to Newport and played up there for a while. How'd you get the gigs in Newport? Well, I, like I said, we were playing at a, a place in, in the city, and this man was at the show. He just happened to be in this club, the Eighth Wonder, if you remember the club on, on 8th Street. In the, in Actually, the, I don't in remember the, Steve Paul's scene, but I don't Yeah, the scene. He, well, this is the Hellers, the right. Trudy Heller. Okay. Joel Heller. Okay. He had a club called the Eighth Wonder. So we were playing there, and this guy came up to me and said, Hi, my name is Paul Schnittman, actually, and uh, I own a club up in Newport, Rhode Island. Would you guys like to come up there and play? I think you guys are really good, and we'd love to have you up there. I went, wow. Okay. So then that started the whole Newport faction, which <clears throat> led to that band going to Connecticut, breaking up, and eventually wound up back in Newport with pieces of other bands right. that I'd met up there. And we were... And the thing about Newport, this is where somebody said to me one day, have you heard the cow sills? And, and I went, what's a cow sill? <laughs> what kind of word is that? And they said, that's, that's this group. That's their name? I said, well, that's their name. You know, that's their last name. Cow sill? No, I've not heard them. What are you talking about? This is these four boys. They're really, really good. Really? So I went over to this place where they were playing, and they were incredible. There was the four, only just the four of them, Billy, Bobby, Barry, and John. Barry and John must have been like 12 and 13 years old at the most, and, and they were doing the best Beatles you've ever heard. That's what they did. They just did Beatles songs, basically, and they sounded incredible. And and I loved him. And then I didn't realize, though, at, when I'd go back to this club I worked in, Dorian's, usually once or twice a weekend, this drunk guy would come in, this alcoholic bastard would come in and be annoying and be loud and be obnoxious, and I'd have him thrown out. And finally, the club owner one night said to me, you know, Waddy, that's, uh, that's Bud Council." <laughs> what? Was, yeah, that's their father. I went, you got to be kidding me, man. <laughs> that's their father? So, and he would, he'd still come in and come in, and, and he said to me one night, he wanted, wanted to manage me, and I'm going, get serious. <laughs> Are you kidding me? I can't stand being around you, you know. You, you're a fucking monster. You're drunk all the time. He goes, well, my kids are going to make it. I went, well, good luck to them with you on board. And he goes, we're going to get it together. I said, oh, yeah? Well, when you get a million dollars together, ask me then, okay? He goes, okay. And so we went from playing in Newport, wound up going up to Vermont. You know, we got an offer to come to this club in Vermont. Well, you know, since I went to college, Vermont's been a lot of time in Vermont. We're in Vermont. Oh, you did? Yeah. Sugarbush. Okay. You know? With a Bluetooth? That's exactly right. <laughs> Something with a big blue tooth hanging from the ceiling. Uh, the blue tooth, that's the club. 
That was it. So you went and played those So games. we went and played up there, dug it, and then they asked us to come back for, like, the whole ski season. So we did. Which and did you ski at all? Oh, hell no. No. Okay. No, no, no. no. Was, Warren, Vermont. Warren, Vermont. Exactly, man. That's amazing. <laughs> so... We're up there, and we were, you know, we're running out of options now. I mean, you know, the idea was to get a record deal, and that didn't wasn't happening. And there was a DJ in Providence who was trying to help us, and that fell through. And I'm up there going, man, this is like the end of the road. We're up here in winter. You're not going to be discovered at the Blue Winter in Vermont, 50 below. I don't think we're going to, you know, Clive Davis ain't coming here. He's Ahmed Erdogan. And all of a sudden, I got a phone call from... The guy that used to run the club I played in, David Ray. Warty. He called me Warty. New England accent. Hey, Warty. It's Dave. I went, hey, man, what are you doing? He goes, Warty, I'm working for Bud now. I went, what? <laughs> you got to be kidding me. He goes, Warty, he's got money now. He says, the kids are making it. He's got a serious deal with the Dairy Association. He's So he goes, hold on. I'm going to put him on the phone. He goes, Warty, how you doing? I said, I'm okay, Bud. He goes, yeah. He says, we're coming up to see you. But you are? He goes, yeah, we're coming up tomorrow to see you. Okay, fine. Great. Blizzard. They drive up. Pure fucking blizzard. It took them forever to get there. And at this point, this band is now called, it, was, it used to be called The Orphans. Now it's called Twice Nicely. It's a different arrangement. It's a girl, really talented girl who we moved out here together with that band. But, uh, so there's Bud and David Ray sitting at this club at the Bluetooth, watching the band. And I get done with the set. He goes, band sounds good, Waddy. Band sounds good. I said, yeah, good, thanks. He goes, so I got the million dollars now. <laughs> you want to come with me? I went, absolutely. <laughs> right, right, right. Get me out of here, man. <laughs> exactly. I'm ready. It was fine. We'll move you into New York with us. You know, we got this apartment in New York. We got rooms all over the place. You guys can live downstairs. Okay, great. So at that point, we moved back to the city, living with the Cowsills at that point, up and down. You know, one of the kids is always hanging out with us. I'm always hanging out with Billy Cowsill, the oldest one. And eventually, Bud said, I'm moving my operation to Los Angeles. Do you want to go? I went, definitely. I said, I can't. And this relates back to, I, you know, Leslie's got a career going. Right. I can't get a session. I can't. No one wants to hear me play. So, yes, please, man. I want to go to Los Angeles. Yep. So we moved out with, with we drove out with uh, the ma- our, da- our manager, Dave, and came out here. What year was that? This is 68. Okay, but let's go back. We were talking just before we started that you went to New Haven College for a semester. Yeah. When was that? Well, it was 67, I guess. So how did you get out of the draft? I got out of the draft by finally... I told Bud, I said, look, I have this problem. <laughs> the draft board is, is on my tail because uh, I've missed five or six physicals already. And uh, the last letter I got said, you're going to Vietnam. You don't even need to take your physical. Just show, just show up at Port, Fort Washington in Brooklyn, and you're going to go right from there to Vietnam. And, uh, so Bud... And bless his heart, and his, the one good thing he ever did for anybody, probably, was he goes, we're going to fix this for you. And I want to put you in touch with somebody. And he put me in touch with Herbie Cohen. Remember who Herbie was? Of course. Was? His brother was a publisher, was a manager of uh, Frank Zappa. Well, Herbie was, yeah. Yeah. So I meet Herb one day in New York at uh, the Carnegie, I think it was. 
And we're sitting. He goes, "So Bud told me you got a problem with the with the army and stuff, and uh, you got a physical coming up." I went, "Yeah, I do." So he says, "Well, I'm going to help you." He says, first of all, you got to believe something." Went, "What's that?" He goes, "They don't want you." Went, "What?" He goes, "They don't want people like you. You're not army material. They can't do anything with someone like you." You'll be a waste of their time. You won't bend to the, what they want. They don't need you. You got to believe that. You really got to believe it. Otherwise, you're not going to get out of this. And okay, I believe it. I believe it. <laughs> and, and so he told me. He said, "Well, when's your physical?" I said, "It's in two and a half weeks or something like that. Three weeks." He goes, "All right. Well." Go, what does your father think about this? I said, my father wants me to go in the army. He's so really well. He was just disheartened with my whole truant life, and, right? You know the band thing, and you know he, he didn't want to see me go to the front line or anything. But the army would straighten you out, right? So uh, he said, well, listen, I think you should tell your father you're not going in, and tell him he's going to help you because I want your father to drag you in to that physical. I want you to have your father hand you over to the, to the sergeant. I want them to see that you don't want to be there, and I want them, that your father wants you in there, and this is all part of what you're going to do. He says, look, he says, you look like a nervous guy, man, so just play that up. Be nervous. Be really nervous. He says, and don't. Don't do anything they want you to do. Don't answer questions on the physical. Don't. Uh, don't take the physical. Refuse to take the physical. Tell them you, you, you can't undress in front of other people. You're too shy. You're too scared. No, I, okay, fine. All right, yeah, I can, I can handle this. Okay, so, so I took his advice, and, and I just played it up from there, and I started, I didn't shower for a couple of weeks. I didn't shave till the day before it. I didn't wash my hair. I didn't do anything. I just, I didn't eat. I just ate like fruit and fruit. So I weighed nothing by the time, by the time that physical came, I wasn't sleeping. I was drinking coffee all night. The only time I drank coffee. Stayed awake for days and days. I looked ridiculous. I was, and I shaved without, without water the day before. So I was cuts all over me. And, and I prepped, I really prepped for it and uh, played it up. And got there, and I was— Did your father drag you in? And I made my father drag me in. I said, not only are you going to help me, not only am I not going in the Army, you're going to help me. He goes, what? No, I'm not. I said, yes, you are. You're going to drag me in there. He goes, I'm not going to be any part of this. I said, yes, you are. <laughs> and so he did. He, he got on board, and he brought me in. And uh, so I kept hearing Herbie's voice, you know, don't, don't answer the questions on the, on, the, on, the paper, on the written part, on the— so they'd hand me the thing, and I'd sit there, and I would just take the pencil and just go break the point off it. And then the guy would come around and see I haven't written anything. I went, well, I, you know, I broke the, broke the pencil. He'd give me another one, break it. So I, I hardly wrote anything on this. And then the physical part came, and uh, I just played it up, played it up. And when he said the thing about refuse to take your clothes off, that was all well and good in theory, but there was nobody to say it to. There was, there was nobody there except some old guy who all you did was hand him your clothes and he handed you a receipt for it. And I wasn't going to complain to him. He didn't give a <laughs> shit. 
So, and the only, by the way, the only other thing I had was I knew everyone else had scores and scores of paperwork from psychiatrists and things like that. All I had was like a note from my old family doctor. It's one little, you know, little square piece of paper saying, uh, Robert Wachtell has a bad stomach. He's never been the same since his mom died. He's been a little off since then, and he has uh, dyspepsia. He can't eat. I said, what does that mean? He goes, that means he can't eat fried food. And that's all they cook, so. Uh, <laughs> okay, okay, good. This is my note. And uh, so there was nobody to say I'm refusing to do this with, and I got really freaked at that point. I was really scared. I sat down and just was like... I don't know what I'm going to do now. Uh, this is terrifying. Um, here I am alone in here, and everyone, all these goons are taking their clothes off. Uh, and then, So finally I went, okay, got to go through it. Went through this stuff, had my little note in my hand. I was too afraid to tell anyone I want to see the psychiatrist. I didn't know what to do. So, and, But I was, again, funky, you know what I mean? So when they examined me, certain parts of my body, they went... Right. Ew. <laughs> Which was kind of fun. And so all of a sudden, this guy, as you're walking up to this one checkpoint, he's looking at everyone's paperwork and he goes, you, there, you, there. This guy in front of me, you, psychiatrist, you, there, you. I handed my thing, it was, you, psychiatrist. I went, oh, wow, okay, something's working here. So from then on, I sat outside the psychiatrist's office, sat there, and there was, I'll never forget, there was a guy, and Herbie had said, don't talk to anybody. Even if you see someone you know, don't talk to anyone. Don't, no, this is not a social event. Don't communicate with anyone. But there was this guy sitting outside the psychiatrist's office with like a million necklaces on and, and smoking incense in a, in a roach clip. And, and it was like, wow. <laughs> And I said to this guy, and I noticed there was no one else around. I went, you don't really think you're going to get out like that, do you, man? And he goes, man, are you kidding? I've been in the nut house five times. They ain't going to take me. <laughs> <laughs> so he went in, and sure enough, he was out of that psychiatrist's office in like 30 seconds. You're right. You know, he goes, oh, okay. And then I went in and talked to the psychiatrist and told him how afraid of life I was, basically. And, and uh, said, you ever take drugs? I went, oh, yeah. <laughs> LSD, a lot of it. He goes, how many times? I went, I don't know. He goes, doesn't know. Okay. And and they're, it's funny, they're, they're really mean in there. They're really tough on you all the way through that whole physical. They're yelling at you, do this, I don't do that. If you're blind in one eye, you pass. If you're deaf in one ear, you pass. You're all going to Vietnam. But from the moment I left that psychiatrist's office, they were really kid gloves with me. Oh, hey, Robert, come this way. Here, have a seat over here, man. It'll only be a minute. Uh, okay, and now we're going to give you this slip, and you're going to have a one Y, and just take it easy, and, you know, everything's fine. And, and they were real, like, gentle with me from that moment on. So I left there, and I I don't even know. I got home. I was so elated. I couldn't believe it. You know, and, so you found out right then that they weren't going to take you. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I got a one Y instead and of a so four. So what did what did the psychiatrist say or do? He just he just asked me these questions about you know where have you been? See you've been in Vermont, and I said yeah. I said what did you do there? I said I was washing dishes in this club, the Bluetooth, and uh, what else do you do? I said I don't 
too much else, you know. So I, you didn't let on that you were a musician? No. Okay, why was Herbie doing you this solid? Bud asked him to. Really? Yeah, he knew Bud, and he said, my, one of my guys needs help with the draft board. Do you want anything? He says, yeah, I can help him. <laughs> People have no idea if you didn't live through this. This was like the biggest thing they would be conversed about. It was it frightening. Was crazy. It was frightening. And, and, then, and still, when we moved to L.A., I was still waiting. It was only a one why for anyone who doesn't know what that means. That means a one-year deferment. What you were going for was a 4F means you're out, period. You'll never be in the Army. But a one why means they can come calling again. And they started, you know, the, then it went to the, what do you call it, the... Uh, the the lottery. Yeah, lottery. And finally, they didn't call my numbers, and I was out. Well, you remember what your number was? No, no. Mine was two-something. Well, was, you was great. Oh, of course. <laughs> Come on, I was in college. I was going to get four years. You were still worried. It was frightening. It really was. Right. So uh, you moved to L.A. with Bud. Yeah. Your band is living in this house. Yeah. Is Bud doing anything for you? Yeah, he's... What kind of uh, language barrier have we on here? Can I use you can say whatever my favorite adjective? Absolutely. Okay, he's fucking up every record deal I'm getting. Okay. Uh, we came out here, we did a, a, a demo, you know, and it was really pretty good, you know, original songs. And everyone, this band sounded really good. Everybody sang, five-part harmonies, very good. The songs were musically good, lyrically okay. And it was a good... Good presentation, and it was good enough to, the first deal he went to get for us was with Atlantic, and I remember one day after Bud went and saw Amit, my phone rings, and I pick it up, and I can hear my demo in the background, and it's this voice going, I want to talk to Waddy. Right. Uh, this is Waddy. He goes, this is Amit Erdogan. He goes, I love this fucking record. I love this fucking record. We're gonna welcome to Atlantic, man. We're gonna make a great record. I love this band. You guys sound beautiful. This is incredible. I can't believe it. I hung up the phone, guys. We got a deal. We got a deal. First deal. He went. Day later, no deal. Bud Cowsill would go back to these meetings and ask for the moon, and want to. Converge the Cowsills, make a bigger deal. Wanted, he wanted this for me, but he wanted them to do this for the Cowsills and all this. He had all these big plans. No, Ahmed passed. So then it was on to someone at Columbia. Loved it. Ahmed, he went, Bud went in to make the deal, passed. He ruined at least three record deals that we had. And it was it was amazing, you know. He was just fucking it up left and right. <clears throat> and it's funny when we first moved here. I really wanted to meet Brian Wilson. That was my dream, you know. Brian was what year you moved here? Sixty eight. So sixty eight. Have the Cowsills have their had their hit, any hits yet? I think the Rain in the Park and the other things was a big hit. Okay. And uh, what was the second record? Was uh, we can hair. fly. We can fly. Right. No, hair, hair was later. Okay. Um, so uh, we came out here, and I wanted to meet Brian, and the other person I wanted to meet was Dave Crosby because at that point, David was speaking for our generation. Right. He was saying a lot of good, good things. So I wanted to meet Dave, and I loved the birds. You know, you know. Just a little stop for one second. At what point do you go from Robert to Waddy? Oh, well, in the, in the New Rochelle band, actually, uh, um, there was a guy in that band who, Jerry Burnback, his name is, um, 
he used to fuck up a lot. He used to make a lot of mistakes. So I'd be on his, on his case all the time. And he got sick of it. So one day to shut me up out of nowhere, he just went, I'm sorry, Waddy. Like that off of Wachtell, I guess he got it. And, and I went, what? <laughs> he was okay, Waddy. Don't call me that, man. What's the matter? Stop that. That's weird. And then after a while, I went, you know, I'm so sick of the word, pardon me, Bob. Right. I'm so sick of the name Bob. Maybe Waddy ain't so bad. <laughs> Maybe Waddy's okay. And this is like after I met Leslie, because right. you know, I introduced myself as Bobby. And I said, Maybe Waddy's okay. Yeah, I'm going to go with Waddy. I'm sick of, I don't want to hear myself called Bob anymore. My wife still calls me Bob. So is my brother, but, you know. And uh, so that's when that happened. You're listening to my conversation with Waddy Wachtel, recorded live at the TuneIn Studios in Venice, California. Hope you're enjoying this episode of the Bob Left Sets podcast. As you know, we shoot a little video and take pictures here at the TuneIn Studios. So you can look them up at at TuneIn on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Now, more of my conversation with Waddy Wachtel on the Bob Left Sets podcast. Okay, by the 70s hit, your hairstyle, curly hair to your shoulders is legendary. When do you, we all grew our hair with the Beatles, but when did you develop the look you presently have? It just grows this way, so I've <laughs> had it forever. Okay, you but know. people didn't have their hair that long no. at that time. No, but it was, it was you know, we, ever, ever since Beatles, everyone's hair started growing. And, right. You know, I used to try to straighten this stuff, too, and it was, it was a nightmare. Uh, but uh, after a while, I just went, I saw, it was funny, I saw Eric Clapton one day, and he had, like, his big frizzy hairdo. I right. went, well, gee, that's how my hair looks <laughs> when I wake up. So, fuck it, I'm done. I'm right, on the cover of it. Israeli Gears. Let's, start, let's yeah. start, go back, go sideways with your brother. Your brother graduates from high school. Does he continue in school? Yeah, he went to Brooklyn College. He went to NYU, and then he was uh, in Brooklyn College studying broadcasting. And then how does he become a designer? Uh, well, he came out here, and I lived next to uh, this great photographer named Laurie Sullivan. And Jimmy came out, and he met Laurie, and they just hit it off. And Laurie said, I do photography, and I'm you know, thinking of doing album covers. And Jimmy goes, oh, that's great. I can, I can do layouts and stuff for that. And so they, they became this team, and they did a lot of the covers, you know. All the, a lot the of Dawn Patrol? Well, even before Dawn Patrol, I think it was just Jimmy and Laurie did Stevie's, Buckingham Nick's album covers, them. But your brother had any training? I have to ask him. I don't think so. <laughs> you know, Are you he, still close? Oh, yeah, sure. Okay, yeah. so anyway, let's back to you. So Bud cocks up all the record deals. Yes, he does. And then where does that leave you? Well, it also leaves me, what I was going to say was when I met, the second night I'm in town, I see Dave Crosby sitting at this restaurant, like two tables away from me, and I'm going, this is unbelievable. I can't, this is, in, what do I do? Do I introduce myself, I'll make a fool of myself? Yep, get up. <laughs> or do I let this opportunity pass by? No, get up. Went over and interrupted his dinner and said, I'm sorry to bother you, Mr. Crosby, but um, my name is Wally Wachtel. I just came here with my band, and... Uh, he says, well, how'd you get here? And I mentioned the cow sills. He went, oh, God. <laughs> I went, yeah, I said, I know, I know. I know, but that has nothing to do with us. We have our own band, and I'd love you to come hear our band. And uh, he goes, okay. What? <laughs> okay. 
Well, okay, fine. So he came over and Judy Pulver, who was our, our girl in the band, made dinner and we sat around and talking and and then Dave said this thing to me. This is during the, the area where Bud is screwing up deals and stuff and I'm starting to get a little worried about it, but I don't know. I'm, he's my manager. I think everything's cool. He goes, so David says, who's your publisher? I went, um, my manager. And he just looks at me and he goes, asshole. I went, huh? He goes, nobody should be your publisher. You're your own publisher. Your manager is robbing you. He says, what else has he got? I said, well, we signed management, production, and publishing. And he goes, you idiot. <laughs> he says, that's robbing you. Nobody should have your publishing. So when he left that night, I called Bud and I said, I want my publishing back. You robbed me and everything. So things started getting a little intense. And uh, as it kept going, the band, because of Bud screwing us up, we never got anywhere. We never got, we finally did a gig. All we did, he says, I just want you guys to, to write and rehearse. Write and rehearse, write and rehearse. So, so he's paying for you to live. Yeah, yeah, we got 50 bucks a week. Right. And living in a nice joint. And we finally did a gig. And, 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 I met, and I'm, it's funny, I met a, a dear friend of mine there who wound up <laughs> writing Werewolves in London with Warren and myself. But uh, he saw my band that night. But it, it kept going on and David called me after he heard the band and everything and we, and there was two phone calls he made to me one of them was let me ask you something what would you think if i was to put a band together with steven stills and graham nash and i went huh? <laughs> i think i don't have to think it would be the biggest band in the world forever that's what i think he goes okay well that's what we're doing i went oh man that's great then he called me a couple days later he goes waddy i gotta talk to you about something i went what he goes you know you're the only one in that band right <laughs> oh no, no. He goes. He says everybody sings okay, but he says you know you're the only musician in that band, right? I went. Well, let me put it this way. I hear what you're saying, but you know I'm gonna try to keep this band together. He goes, it's not gonna happen, man. And and so the, eventually, Bud screwing us up, screwing us up, and everybody's starting to rag on me. And finally, I said, Oh, and we met Keith Olson. The producer. Yeah, and and his partner was a guy named Kurt Betcher. I don't know if you remember Kurt. Uh, he he died. And uh, But Keith and Kurt were going to, they heard us and loved our band, wanted to produce us. So we went in the studio with him, and it just became a fight. It became a real, it wasn't working. And Keith and I became, well, I can tell he and I were hitting it off musically. But the band was not having so, and, and I met. Oh, I was gonna say, as I met some studio musicians, this I'm still a, a green little radish, you know, that just came out here. But I met guys who were studio musicians, and I went, well, and I heard this guy playing. I went, well, I play that good. I play as good as he does. Yeah, I want. That's what I want to do. I want to become a studio musician. And. Uh, and then I looked around and this band was just giving me nothing but pain in the neck. But as a matter of fact, that's what I'm going to do. You're all fired. And I'm not quitting. I want you to know there's a difference. You're fired. So you, this band's done now. And I'm going to, and Judy and I were the songwriters in the band. So she and I kept together and tried to pursue a deal for the two of us, which didn't happen. But 
she and I wound up living together, and then I started working. I started getting sessions. Okay, two questions. Is this a romance between you and her? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, it didn't and, start that way, but it wound up that okay. way. Okay, and then the rest of the band, you tell them they're fired. Yeah. What do they say? They said, okay, fine. Well, we, we were at a point of everything was friction anyway. Okay, it what does Bud a, say? Oh, Bud at that point was out. Bud was gone. We were done with Bud at that point. Uh, I, I had taken back my publishing. I didn't want him to manage me anymore. It was over. I said, we're done. We're done. And actually his son, Bill, got a record deal. And that was the first session I did. Uh, I, I did. I played a session for Billy. Okay, but one has to ask. Late 60s, he made you sign paper. You know, this legendary story with Billy Joel. He makes a deal. They come back later when he's successful. Yeah, no, he just let it go. He did. He did. He, he was cool on that level. Okay, I so. I think because he was screwing us. And if anybody had taken him to court, they would have said, yeah. You're dead, man. Okay. So he knew he was in the wrong, so you're, obviously. So you're working with Keith. You decide to become a studio musician. Yeah. Okay, so how do you get – your first gig is how much later with Kalso? Well, it just – it's timing-wise, it was kind of around the same period. You know, Billy left the band, left the family group and got a, a record deal. So he goes, I got a, a record deal. I want you to play on this session with me. Uh, great. And, 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 oh, and another facet of this is I did meet Brian. Wilson. I met a, a friend of mine who became a lifelong friend, and he was the right, Brian's right hand man for many years. They weren't. He wasn't working with him anymore. But I met this guy. His name is Arnie Geller, and he looked he looked just like a Jewish relative from right. New York. He <laughs> was so New York looking, right. and he was an LA guy. But he was so New York. And, and anyway, he brought me to Brian's. I met Brian. And he says, so you met Brian and you said and did what? I first, uh, well, I went crazy, right? But uh, I, I just told him what a big fan I was, and I said, as a matter of fact, I am such a fan of yours. I want to show you that there's a song by the Beach Boys called "Let the Wind Blow." I don't sure, know, you know that song. Yeah, I do. Beautiful. Let the wind. Okay. Beautiful piano part. Right. Really bizarre piano part, and that's one of the things that I made myself learn on piano. Because I just loved it so much. I said, I'm such a fan of yours that I've learned. I'm a guitar player, but I had to learn Let the Wind Blow. And I sat down at his piano and played it for him. And he's going, wow, <laughs> that's heavy. <laughs> <laughs> you, you learned that? You taught yourself that? I went, yeah, I had to. I said, I just love it. He goes, wow, that's cool. So, And then we went in, in his studio and he sat down and he played me some stuff on, the, on his board. And, but Brian was, he was in a real fragile place then. And... Uh, but so I got to meet Brian, and Brian put me on a, a date. That's what I was going to say. The second re record date I did was through Brian Wilson. It was some, I don't even know what it was for now. I don't remember. Okay. When you stop working with Bud and Bud stops giving you your $50 a week, before you become a studio musician, what are you living on? We were living on uh, a little bit of surplus money we had, and Judy had money, had some bread. Family money? Yeah, family money. So okay. we were living off of Judy till I started getting working. And then Okay, so you go to you do the the gig with Bill Cowsell. Yeah. How do you establish your studio career? Well, I did that. I did uh, the other session for Brian. And then it's funny when I said I when we did our gig, the one gig we did with my band, my friend Roy Marinell, a guy who I came to meet then, was at that show was really impressed by this band because we did, it sounded amazing, this band. And uh, so we got to be friendly and he knew 
Nick Vinay. Right. Nick was producer of the Beach Boys. Producer of the Beach Boys. Producer Rogers. and Linda Ronstadt's Stone Ponies. Right. Record. So he says, You should meet Nick. So he set up a meeting and wanted Nick to hear me play. So Nick put me on a, a, a date and he liked what I was doing. So he hired me. So that's how I started working through Nick, really. And he would hire me over and over for dates because he really dug what I was doing. And now you're giving up the dream. How do you feel about that? It was all the dream from the band thing became studio musician. That's the new dream. That's what I want. Just because you you you'd slug too hard without success. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah. Okay, so you and Judy and I were getting nowhere. Okay, so you're working with Nick. And you're doing these sessions. What's the next step? The next step is somebody comes to me and says, I'm going to this guy's house to talk with him about some upcoming record sessions. Okay, great. And he says, oh, and by the way, the Everly Brothers need a guitar player. Uh, so at that point, though, I've started working with Nick, and, and I'm doing other sessions around town. This, I'm working with Keith Olsen. Produce, he's producing other people. So while I was doing my own demos with Keith, he was working me on sessions as okay, well. Okay, two things. Well, one, to what degree are you sitting home waiting for the phone to ring, and to what degree are you working it? Well, you, working the phone, you mean? Yeah. I didn't know how to do that. It was all a matter of that phone ringing. You okay. Know, I didn't know how to. You didn't know how to. I mean, the nature of being a musician, though, inherently is you're a networker. So, well, but there was, I didn't know what that meant. Okay. And were know? there other people? So, okay. You were playing specific gigs with Nick and with Keith, but there was, was there someone who had your job and you said, well, I got to knock this guy off to get that job? Well, you know, it's funny. Cooch <laughs> had that job, really, because I'd see all these records with this name on it. And I'm going, why is he working so much? Who's this guy? And so I left. Judy and I had our thing together. We split up, and I moved in with this guy, Arnie Geller, to his little house. And where's Judy today? Judy is, works for uh, Vari Daily Variety. Really? She, she's a writer for Variety. Yeah, she's great. She's, so she never made it in the music business. She got a record. She did a record. We went and toured it and stuff, but it never really and turned what, into a what career. What was the name of the act? Uh, Judy Pulver. Okay. Pulverizing was the record. Okay. Uh, so, okay, you move in with uh, Geller. Move in with Arnie. And at that point, I'm starting to do sessions. I'm working the sessions here and there. And this meeting that I had about the Everly Brothers, this guy is talking about record dates, but he says to me, the Everly Brothers need a guitar player. I went, oh, wait a minute. Are you kidding? Right. I said, that's my gig, man. I, I know every song. I know both vocal parts. I know every guitar part. What do I do? How do I, how do I get there? So he goes, well, um, call this guy, Sandy Zevon. Call Sandy Zevon, and you'll you'll he'll set up an audition for you. Okay, great. Hi, Sandy. This is my name is Wadi Wachtel. Be it, be down at uh, SIR uh, tomorrow. Rehearsal hall. Yeah. So I go down there. I'm looking around. I don't know who's who. Are you Sandy? No. My name's Gene. I'm, I'm trying out for the band, too. I'm the drummer. Okay, are you Sandy? No, I'm Bob Kanigi. I'm the bass player. I've been with the Everly's for quite a while. I went, okay. Oh, you're Waddy. Come on in here. So we're in the room waiting. The door opens, and in comes this guy with a fedora hat on, seersucker jacket. And at that point, I'm walking around. I got a beard. 
I'm wearing an undershirt and clogs. <laughs> it's a hot summer day in L.A. I'm Sandy's Yvonne. Oh, okay. Hey, man. How you doing? Good. All right, so here's what we're going to do. We'll play the song, and then you'll play it. I went, okay, well, you know, you could you could leave out that step. Right, right, right. I know all these tunes. He goes, no, this is how we're going to do it. I went, oh, okay, fine. So anyway, that's how I got the job at the Everly Brothers. That's where I met Warren. Okay. And uh, When did he go from being Sandy to Warren? Well, somebody, you know, it's funny. Somebody just mentioned to me why he was calling himself Sandy, and I can't remember. It was some cousin's name that he, he liked or something like that, so he adapted it for a little while. But when we were on the road, he was Warren's, Yvonne, right away. It was Warren. I thought your name was Sandy. He goes, Warren. <laughs> okay, fine. Um, but so and then, okay, did you get close to him like you get close to Keith Olsen? Yeah, well, in a manner of speaking, I mean, Warren and I had a uh, vinegar and water kind of relationship forever, really. But we were we became very very close. But at first, it was sand and uh, gravel next to each other. You know, we were always arguing about music. It was always about music, though. You know, and uh, but we we wound up playing music all the time, all night long, every night on the road with the Everlys. And what was wonderful about that was that when I got the job with the Everleys, they said, now listen, don't you try to get them together. I went, huh? <laughs> what are you talking about? They said, well, you know, they don't get along. I went, fine, you know. Uh, so don't you be the one that think, you know, don't you let yourself think you'll be the one to bring them together. I said, are you kidding? I, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm walking on eggshell. I haven't even met them yet. You know, I didn't meet them until we went on stage at... Knott's Berry Farm. It was the first gig. And then we went to Europe right away the next day, two days later. So I wasn't about to try to meet, you know, I didn't right. know anything. I was frightened to death. These are the other, my idols. And, uh, but one night, so every night we're, we're just playing music all night long. And Phil goes, what are you guys doing? I said, we were just, we're playing all night. And he goes, oh, I'm going to come by. And then the next day Donald goes, so what are you guys doing? I said, well, we've been playing at night. He goes, well, fuck, I'm coming over. So this was the dream, Bob. You have the Everly Brothers sitting in your hotel room, sitting on the floor singing. It was the most magical thing you can't. You can't. So you brought them together. No, I didn't. Music did. Right. You know, me and Warren, our, our, our addiction to music brought them together, brought their addiction to music into the room with us, I guess. But there's the Everly Brothers sitting on the floor in your hotel room singing. It was... So beyond reality, and everybody was smoking cigarettes, smoking a little weed, drinking all night long, every night. This was our life on the road. That was it. We'd do a show, we'd go to the room, play music all night. So Warren is, and so Warren's playing me Desperados out of the Eaves. He's playing me Frank and Jesse, Carmelita. I'm playing him. Maybe I'm right. You know, a couple of my songs. It was great. It was amazing, and uh, you know, went from that. Came back to town, still sessions are going, I'm getting more and more dates, and I was working with Nick still. And all of a sudden, Nick Benet takes me aside and he goes, it's time for you to move on, Waddy. <laughs> I went, what does that mean, I'm fired? You're firing me? He goes, no, I'm not firing you. It's time for you to move on. You, you, you're, you're better than what we're doing here. We're doing these folk records, a lot of folk artists, and I was playing acoustic all the time. And he goes, 
there's a new piano player in town, this guy named David Foster. He just moved here, and he's the hot shot guy in town, and I've invited him to the session tomorrow night because I want him to hear you play. So bring your amp, bring your Les Paul, and you're going to play electric tomorrow. I want him to hear you play slide. Play. Okay. So the session came. I met Dave, played, he dug it. Apparently, I guess, I didn't know. And two, three days later, I get a call from Lou Adler's office saying they want me on a session with, for Lou. And I'm, I'm overlooking one aspect of this. In this interim time, through working with Keith, I first, the first one of my brothers that I met was Leland, Lee Sklar. And he was, uh, we worked on a session for Bobby Womack, Keith was producing. So I meet Lee, and I've already met Jim Keltner, but I hadn't met Cooch, I hadn't met Russell. And, Russ Kunkel. Yeah, and so all of a sudden I'm going to SIR one day, and I'm, I have my car, my 57 Chevy wagon, and out of the driveway comes another 57 Chevy wagon, both primer gray color, and this guy is driving it, stops, and he looks at me, he goes, are you Waddy? <laughs> yeah. He goes, I'm Russ. I went, yeah, all right, man. Hey, how you doing? He goes, he says, I got to go, but we're going to be seeing a lot of each other. <laughs> yeah? He says, yeah. And so, and then, uh, then I got the call to do the session for Lou, for, uh, I think it was a Tim Curry. Tim, Tim was making a record. And Cooch was on the date. So there was the, the crux of the brothers I've grown up playing re records with, Russell, Leland and Danny. And Danny and I, and I had this thing against this guy, Cooch. I hate this fucking guy. Who is this guy? He's getting all this work. And I meet him and we loved each other instantly. And we, you know, and the first tune was like a reggae tune, which was our, my passion and Danny's passion. And Warren and I just craved Harder They Come. When that came out, we were, uh, Warren and I and Jorge Calderon, we saw that movie a million times, and we learned <laughs> Sitting every Sitting here in limbo. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, Johnny Too Bad, right. every song. 007, all those great tunes. And so we were all reggae freaks, so Danny and I got on famously. And uh, so it went from that to Carol King, and then Peter, Peter Asher saw me playing with Carol, and he hired me to uh, play for Linda. Okay, this was on the road or for records? It was for, uh, so hard to say. I think it was for the road. Oh, because uh, I, the first session I did for Peter was with J.D. Souther. Okay. Um, on a song called Simple Dreams. Simple Man, Simple Dreams. Yeah, on the Black Rose album. Yeah. Phenomenal. And J.D. and I were friends because Jimmy, my brother Jimmy, did the Souther Hillman Fure album cover. Okay. So I met J.D. then and we liked each other. We spent a night, one night getting really drunk together and wanted to play a little and he wanted to sing Everly's. I went, Everly's? <laughs> now, right. now you're talking, man. So I had my, all I had was my Les, I didn't even have an acoustic guitar. I had my Les Paul and JD had an acoustic. So we strummed the little guitars together and played all night. And, and when it was funny when he left, uh, when I woke up the next day, I said to Jimmy, I said, did he like me? Was it, he goes, I think he liked you. Yeah. He, he said, man, your brother's funky. <laughs> and, oh, yeah? Is that a compliment? I think, I hope that's a compliment. And uh, J.D. and I became the best of friends and uh, spent many years together working on songs and music and records. And okay, so you're basically doing sessions 
for these individuals that you have connections to as opposed to a guy who's showing up at nine and uh, – Well, I was doing that too. You were doing like yeah, yeah. traditional all of a sudden, union All sessions. of a sudden I was working real sessions. I was working like two, three sessions a day. Like that's what was happening in, the, in that period, the early 70s was this incredible musical explosion in Los Angeles and there was so much – there were so many great artists and there was so much work being done. You know, I was working – I worked on a movie score with Lionel Newman. I worked for Jimmy Haskell. I worked with Mike Dacey, with Hal Blaine, all these guys, all the guys, you know, working on Jackie Shannon records, working on Helen Helen Reddy records, you know, working on everything. We're Rita Coolidge here one day. And then Stevie Lindsay – we made Stevie Lindsay's record with Keith, the Buckingham Knicks record. On Polydor, We did right? that on uh, Polydor, yeah. Yeah. And – and then I didn't see Stevie for a long time. Well, before you go there, so you're working all these sessions. You're probably now making good money. Yeah. So your lifestyle changes? Yeah, somewhat. You know, basically. I mean, not really. Okay. You know, my lifestyle changed, didn't change, but I was supporting myself. Okay. How about Coke and other drugs since you're working so much? There was a lot of that around. Okay. Yeah. So you, okay, so you do the Buckingham Knicks record and you say you hadn't talked to Stevie for a while. Yeah. Uh, you know, all of a sudden, they were gone. I was I was working for Linda. You know, Peter when Peter saw me with, with Carol, he said, "I want you to come play on the road with with Linda." As you well. know, just to be clear, Andrew Gold was a key part of yeah. that act. Yeah. Okay. So how did you fit in? Well, we played together. You know, like uh, the first session, I think I did for Linda. Oh, I did an overdub on, a, on something pretty for her. But then the first tracking date I did for Linda was the song That'll Be the Day. Right. And so Andrew and I, you know, I played my solo, he played his, and then we played the little lick at the end together, and we got on well. I knew Andrew. I had met Andrew, again, through my friend Roy Marinell. And uh, there, was a, there was a whole bunch of guys down in Venice. You know, Roy, Andrew, Kenny Edwards. All these guys had this little musical family going on down there. So I knew Andrew. And So there was no competition? Not really, no. No. Okay, but so when it came to the records, you would both play on the records. Yeah. Okay, so, okay, you're playing with the Andrew, and you're, now you're talking about Stevie. Well, yeah, so it went through the years of Linda, and we went through different uh, band personnel changes in Linda's band, but I got to a point where that was over for me. I just, I couldn't do it. The music, it's, for me, it's the music dictates what I do, and if I'm not musically in a good place with it. I can't last. I just can't do it. I, you know, I, I mean, you when you're doing sessions, that's different. You know, you walk in sometimes and there's a song you don't like, but you're going to do your best. You know, you're going to do your, your fucking best to make sure you get something good on there. And and that's how it is on a session. But when you're doing it live and stuff, you, it's just different. I, I get to a point, the material all of a sudden became stuff I couldn't play, didn't want to play. So... I left, and uh, and then Stevie, and I was still doing sessions, like, you know, two, three sessions a day, and all of a sudden I got a call from Jimmy Iovine's office saying, we want you to play on Stevie Nicks' solo record. And, oh, well, okay, haven't seen her in a while. So I remember I Just did, out of the blue, you haven't seen her in years? And yeah. She just go, okay. Yeah, she told Jimmy, I, right. I want to get Waddy Wachtel here. And so we I showed up and saw each other, and we just... Got right back into it, you know. We were, we were friends a long time ago, and we became fast friends again. And musically, it was, 
I could I could see what to do on her stuff. I knew what to do, and it, it just worked right away. You know, so that's what happened. <laughs> okay, that's 1980, that. I believe. Yeah, 82, 81. Right. And what else is going on with you then? Well, just that sessions and that a lot of still a lot of the record dates. And like Brian Brian Ferry's record went down, and before that, you know, the, the, all the seventies was Warren, you know, Jackson. We did the the uh, the album, the Blue Cover album, Late for the Sky. No, no, are you talking about Blue Zivon. first? Yeah, Zevon, the first yeah. Zevon album on Asylum. Yeah, and uh, I played on that record. Warren introduced me to Jackson, brought me in, and so we played that record. And then Jackson called me and said, "I want you to co-produce his next record with me." I went, what, really? Wow, that's great. And Jackson said, well, he won't listen to me <laughs> anymore. He won't listen to me. And uh, he'll listen to you right now, but he'll, he probably won't listen to you either after this one's done. And that's what happened exactly. But uh, so in we went and we did Excitable Boy. And uh, That was the breakthrough record yeah, for Zivon. It was, it was and you are a credited writer on Werewolves of London? Yeah. So how did that come together? Well, again, back to my friend Roy Marinell. I'd known him since maybe 70, 69, 70. And he and I would get together and work on songs, write songs. And one day, Roy, he said, I, I got this lick and uh, played me this lick. And we tried for about two years to put it to a song and never could. And then what happened was I went to England with Linda. No, no, excuse me. I went to England with my old friend Judy Pulver, when she had her record situation. And there I am in London. And I went to a Chinese joint in Soho called Li Ho Fuchs. <laughs> and, and when I came back, I stopped by Roy's one day. Uh, as I was heading into town to work on a session for Linda, I think. And I stopped by Roy's and Warren was there. And he goes, oh, man, I'm glad you're here. He says, Phil called me last night. Phil Everly called me last night. And he said, there's a song title. I got a song title for you, you and Waddy. You got to write a song called Werewolves of London. And, and I literally just got home from London. So I went, well, that's easy. And the best part was I looked at Roy with this lick that he'd been playing for years. I went, Roy, <laughs> play that fucking lick. <laughs> And he started the da da right. da da, and I just looked at Warren and I said, "So we need lyrics." He means something like, "I saw a werewolf with a Chinese menu in his hand walking down the streets of Soho." And he goes, "Yeah, yeah, just like that." And I wrote the first verse. Basically, I just spit out the first verse, recounting what I just went through in London. And I said, "And it's, it's, it's a, a war, it's a werewolf, so we should go ooh." <laughs> Werewolves and Warren goes, that's great, that's great. I said, yeah, okay, well, you finish it. I got to go to work. <laughs> <laughs> I got I to gotta leave. But we, we, we so we, we, they wrote some lyrics down. We got through the first verse. Warren and Roy sketched some more lyrics. And we wrote our song. And that was basically it. And then uh, recording that song was the hardest song in the world to get on, on tape. It, it just wouldn't behave, so to speak. It wouldn't lay down. Every time we tried it, it Warren and I hated it. Um, just wasn't. It sounded cute. It sounded funny. The 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 band track didn't sound heavy. You know, it didn't sound. And we needed it to be. It had to juxtapose a serious 
band track underneath this ridiculous lyric. And uh, and Jorge Calderon, I'm pretty sure, it was George said, uh, you know, who could we tried seven bands and all the greatest players in town, you know, Russell and Lee, Lee and Lee and, and Rich Schlosser or Mike Botts or uh, Jeff Picaro, uh, Bob and Russ, uh, Lee and Russ, every combination we could try. And we kept failing. We just said, we don't like it. And Jackson's going, it's good. We're going, no, it's not. It's not good enough. It doesn't feel like it yet. And Jorge said, you know who could play this? Mick Fleetwood and John McVie, I bet, could play this. I went, yeah, that's a heavy, heavy beat. I think you're right, man. I bet that's right. So I called Mick and I said, would you guys consider coming down here to play? He says, you want us to play? <laughs> it was like this mutual admiration <laughs> society. They were so taken that we would want them, and we were so taken that they would say yes. So it was a magical crazy long night of takes uh, and where we finally at six in the morning I looked at Jackson through the glass and I said take two was good wasn't it he goes yeah you want to hear it I went, yeah because when we did it we did take one we did take two Jackson went that was pretty good man I think that was good Mick goes nah let's keep going let's keep going <laughs> next thing I know it's like six in the morning you know and we're still like flogging away I went, <laughs> Jackson, take two was good, right? He goes, yeah, we're going to go here, take two. And, I, and because Mick was saying to me, we're never done, Waddy. We're never done. <laughs> and I finally looked at Mick and went, we're done, Mick. <laughs> we're done. Pack your fucking drums up, man. We're finished. We got it. And take two was the one. And uh, Okay, did you have any idea that it would be a hit and a legendary record? No, not a clue. We were... Warren and I were taken aback, as a matter of fact, when Asylum picked that as the single. We were amazed. We were so wrong. We, were, we so could not see the forest for the trees, I think is the phrase. We couldn't see it at all. We were, we were aghast that they would pick the joke tune out of all these great songs. We thought, what the hell is going on here? And they were so right, and we were so wrong. And uh, knock wood, it's uh, been supporting me and Warren's family, and Roy's now passed away too, but it's supporting all of us all these years, you know. So there's a good check that still comes in from uh, Werewolves. Hopefully, Park. yeah. <laughs> it, it's and been you, quite a good earner. And uh, one other song have you written that were that my audience would be familiar with? Her Town 2 was another. Yeah, the great uh, J.D. Souther, James Taylor song. How did that come together? Uh, it came together with uh, Peter suggested that James and J.D. write a song together. And, uh, and Peter I, Asher. Yeah. And so we, J.D. said, look, I don't, I don't know James at all. I said, well, I'll come too. I'll come over. Because I was working with James then. And I said, okay. So I'll come over. And, and we got there and uh, it was a crazy night. And we just were kind of sitting around. I, I was working on a session and... Uh, and J.D. called me. He says, where are you, man? He says, James is here, and I don't, I don't know what to do with him. I said, well, just give him, a, you gotta, just give him a drink and just, you know, hang out. Well, I'll be there soon. I'll be there soon. So I get there, and we're kind of all, you know, it's a little tenuous when, you're, you, know, when you sit down and write a song with somebody if you're not that familiar with them or haven't written with them. It's how do you start? You know, what's the icebreaker? And, and all of a sudden, I don't know where James just started 
finger picking this really lovely chordal thing. And I looked at JD and I went, Where's your cassette player? Mm -hmm. I said, What? Cassette player? Get a cassette player. Get a cassette machine. And James is still playing. And finally, JD goes and gets a cassette player, hits it, puts it down, hits record, James stops. <laughs> right, of course. Yeah. Heard that coming. And I went, Oh, no. And he says, Oh, shit, what was I doing? I said, this is what you were doing. And again, my ear. I said, this is what you were doing. He goes, oh, yeah, right, all right, that's it. And then we dug the changes and we just started working on lyrics. And by 6 or 7 in the morning, we had this beautiful song. I love that record. Oh, good. Yeah. Oh, really? Best song on that record, Dad Loves His Work, I think, is the album? I think so, yeah. Okay, so you work with Stevie and then you end up working with Henley. How does that come to be? Um, well, I'd, I'd worked with Don, you know, through the years in town. I'd met the guys. So Don and Glenn would be at, our, at Warren Sessions. You know, that's what I mean. That, that period in Los Angeles was incredible. If you, weren't, if you weren't on a session working there, chances are you were there hanging out with your friends and helping. You know, you need, you need a tambourine part or something or... You know, just have a drink, sit down, have a, have a cigarette, you know, whatever, hang out. So that's how it was. It was such a intertwined, creative period. It was unbelievable. It was, I equate it to like Liverpool when Beatles explosion happened and everybody knew each other and all these bands, you know, were collectively working. And that's how it was here. It, you were working, I met Crosby, so I knew Dave. I met Steve Stills, so I was working with Graham. I, uh, I was... I, I worked on some stuff. Don Henley was producing an artist, so I play. He hired me to play on that, and uh, it was, that's how it was. I mean, you were just in the thick of it. Everybody was in the thick of it together, and so um, Don, at one point, decided he was going to make a solo record, and he asked a few different people about producing, and I spoke to him about it, but he chose Danny, and Danny said to Don, well, if you get Waddy, he says, yeah, yeah, bring Waddy in here. So that's how I got on Don's record. I knew Don and you know, from already. Okay, so of, all the, of all these records you've played on, what are you proudest in terms of recorded work? That's hard. That's really hard. Or maybe I'll change the word, make it favorite. What are your favorites? Again, that's, that's really tough. I mean, it, 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 how, do you, how do you choose between being on the, the, the the live session for Blue Bayou, uh, the live session for Betty Davis Eyes, um, Edge of Seventeen, you know, Stand Back. Uh, it, it's hard, you know, Bob Seger. I mean, I, I've been very fortunate and very blessed to be in in the studio with these people when all these these incredible records get made and you're a part of it. You know, I mean, Betty Davis eyes. I just happened to stop by record one. It was my favorite bar, you know, and I was done working for the day and I stopped by and Val Garay said, I'm glad you're here. Josh Leo can't come. I need you to play on this record. I went, man, I've been playing all day. I don't want to work now. He goes, come here and listen to the song. I went, oh, that's pretty good. <laughs> and everything was live. Everything you hear on that record is live. You know, everything went down when we cut it. Kim's vocal, everything. Same with Blue Bayou, Linda's vocal. That's the vocal she sang when we cut it. So, and then, and then, uh, then I went worked with Keith, with Keith Richards. And so then I'm in the studio with Keith Richards. And before that, I'm in the studio with Joe Walsh. 
So it's really hard to pick a favorite. Okay, you know now both I mean? of those are guitar players, although Keith is more known as a rhythm player. You know, Joe Walsh, it would seem that he's doing what you're doing. Yeah, but because of that, we got on really well. <laughs> you know, uh, we got on real well. And I just, you know, a couple, two years ago, did Joe called me and said, would you come tour with me? And it was fantastic playing solos with Joe, you know, next to Joe or instead of Joe. And it was wonderful, you know, so... And it's great to, to know that he would trust me enough to say, you, you take this one, you know. We did his record. There's, there's stuff uh, where I solo on one of this a song, beautiful song, Rosewood Bitters. Whereas the really? Song, yeah, that's me on the solo, you know. And, uh, and, and it was a funny, a funny moment in the studio with Joe. We were, we were so locked into our guitar parts, so we were so excited about it. And, and I said, well, how about, I, I, why don't I play that line? And we'd call each other double WW and, and JW, you know. <laughs> so I said, hey, man, why don't I, I'll play that line. Okay, JW, listen, I should play that line. He goes, yeah, why don't you, why don't you play that line? And then I'll double you, W-W. That's no joke. And we just looked at each other. Did you really just say that, man, or what? Yeah, so, but, you know, the, to, to work on these records and then to get a call from Keith Richards saying, I'm putting a band together, and you're the other guitar player in it. And you never met him? No, we'd met. Okay. I met him when I was on the road with Linda. Okay. And we fell in love right away. You know, we got on. We got on very well. And uh, so uh, that was the call. I got the call. We'll pause here for a brief moment and get right back to Wadi Wachtel. First and foremost, I'm a writer. I cover everything from music to tech to my personal life to the zeitgeist at large. Go to leftsets.com and go down the rabbit hole. In addition to reading my commentary on music, tech, and the world at large, you'll be the first to find out when we've published a new podcast. Plus, I like to give a little bit of behind the scenes, which I hope you find is a nice addition to the podcast. Go to leftsets.com and sign up for the newsletter. Now, more with guitar legend Wadi Wachtel, recorded live at the TuneIn Studios in Venice, California. Okay, a couple of just questions for those on the outside that always wonder about this. Mick Fleetwood and John McVie come to play on Werewolves of London. Do they get paid? Yeah. So you, they build just like a session? Yeah. Okay, so anybody shows up, they're getting paid. Unless you can get away with not paying them, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay, I mean, but if there's a budget and somebody comes in and they're contributing, they're, they're going to get a check. Yeah. Okay. When yeah, they got paid okay. scale. You right, know. right. When you're, when you're a studio musician in town, there's a lot of talk that, well, a lot of the famous musicians or legendary music, musicians are afraid to leave town because someone's going to take their gig. Yeah. Is that something you experience? Well, you know, the... Not really, but I mean, by now, yeah, you know, right. sure. I but, mean, you, you know, were we, more... we would go out of town and come by, back to work. Really, there was you enough know, work. There was enough work then, yeah. And we were of a certain level in people's minds. They wanted you. They wanted you. You know, I came home from months on the road with Linda, and I got a call to go work for Richard Perry, who I'd never met, and I was going, I don't want to go to work, but I went. And, you know, 
got paid well for it and, and met Richard and got on terrifically with Richard. And I love him dearly, you know. And so did years of work with Richard, you know. Leo Sayer met, played with for Leo and Pointer Sisters. And so what would it take for you to go on the road as opposed to stay in L.A.? What do you mean? Back in that era, because you were doing a certain amount of touring and also a certain amount of studio work. You know, some people might say, I don't want to go on the road. Oh, right. Well, if you're a ham like me, you know, you, <laughs> you love being on that stage. So, so that's, that's an attractive offer. And monetarily, it, was, it worked out fine, you know. And, and Peter was uh, a class act always. And he said, you know, you're going to travel first class with us. That's how we do it. You know, the band is that important to us. And so I got spoiled at a young age. And learned that, well, I am more important than just the guy who carries that guitar and knows how to plug it in, you know, so okay, we so were treated very well. Yeah, you know, we've really kind of covered the 80s. What happens now when we hit the 90s and beyond? Well, 90s and beyond, I'm still doing sessions and I'm st still with, at that point, uh, Stevie and I had taken a break and I was with Keith from 88 through 95, I think. And that's when Stevie called me and said, please come back. Come back. And I was a little hesitant. To, and, uh, but I did. I went back and I sat in on a show. And, and she said, I, that's great. She said, it's so great to have you back. I need you to do this with me again. I said, well, if I'm going to do it with you again, he can't lead the band. Uh, my friend Carlos Rios, who still plays with us and is a doll, but he was the band leader when I came back. And I said, if I'm going to do this, I lead the band. That's the only way I work. And that's one caveat with me is I'm pretty much a loud mouth when it comes to bands. So, so I said, I have to lead the band. I can't let, I can't take, do it his way. We got to do it my way. And I said, okay. So and Carlos understood and graciously stepped aside and, so Stevie and I have toured incredibly through the whole 90s and into the thousands and into the 2000s. And then, and like I said, and all of a sudden, Joe called me. And next thing I knew, I was on the road with Joe for about almost a year. So, you know, it just, thank God, keeps going. Okay, so at this point in time, how much do you work? Right now? Yeah. Right now, it's a little slower. Okay. Which is cool. Which is cool. It's all right. But uh, it's like I say, Stevie and Stevie's going to go with, with Fleetwood. They're starting up Fleetwood now. Right. So, so we're having our what I call a trial separation. And <laughs> when Fleetwood tour is over, we'll go back to work. And so record dates will be coming. I don't. I don't have anything right now. It's pretty open right now. So. But there are still you, sessions. To be, I mean, yeah. I hear from Luke yeah. all the time. Right. And he laments that the days you're talking about, the '70s and the '80s, are over. They're over. Okay. Yeah, they are over. But, but you, there you are still get calls. You still get calls yeah. to do what kind of work? Guitar. I mean, uh, record dates, movie dates, TV dates? Um, all of the above. All of the above. I mean, I was fortunate at one point. Uh, I scored, I think it was about 10 movies. And uh, I loved it. And Adam Sandler gave me the shot at that. And How'd you know we had Adam Sandler? I, I, I knew Adam because I worked on a record for him. A long time ago, uh, Brooks Arthur, his producer, called me and said, would you consider arranging a couple of songs for Adam Sandler? And I went, 
comedy rock? <laughs> I don't know, man, but I went down and met Adam. The song was great. <laughs> it's called, uh, well, it, uh, became, it, it came out called Ode to My Car, uh, but it, they made it Piece of Shit Car is the right. song, and it's hysterical, and it's a reggae. And he says, I want to do this reggae. I went, oh, really? Well, let me tell you, you called the right person <laughs> because I can do that for you easily. And, uh, and he played me the song. It was hysterical. And there was another song called Baked, which was hilarious. So we went in the studio and cut these songs and then developed a musical relationship. And next thing I knew, Adam did a tour. He wanted a tour. So we went out on the road for a summer, and it was incredibly funny. And after it, Adam said, I'm going to want you to score a movie. I want you to score a film. I'm doing movies now, and I want you to score movies. So I started to work on Waterboy, and I had to stop on that one for various reasons. But then he called me on uh, Joe Dirt uh, was the next one for me, and I, that was my first complete score. And so I did that. I did several others for him. And so there's, there's movie work, hopefully. He's away right now. Maybe I'll get another score. But I did a couple of independent films as well. But, yeah, you never can tell. You know, you never know. I came back and all of a sudden I got a call that they, they were doing Joe Dirt 2. Right, right. You know, I went, oh, well, okay, <laughs> well. And there was budget wasn't big. But I said, well, I got to do it. I don't want anyone else exactly, to do it. Exactly, exactly. So I'll do it. You know, so I did that. And it just happens. So you never know what's going to happen. You get a call, commercial or uh, a song. Score, but you still believe the phone will ring. Yeah, sure. you're not sitting at home saying the phone may never ring again. You always think that. That's my question. I've thought that from day one. Right. And also, I'm leaving out a very important part of my musical stuff. Don was. I worked tons with Don at one point during the '80s, '90s. A lot of sessions with Don. Beautiful. But I mean, from day one, you get home staring at that phone. Is it ever going to ring again? And it's it's been that way forever. It'll, it'll it'll always be that way. And at what point? I mean, once you start to gain a reputation, uh, as I say, are you actively networking? I'm going back back in the day as opposed to today. Are you hunting for jobs or just waiting for them to come to you? You're waiting. I mean, I, I'm waiting. I I've, I've, I think I've called a couple of people. Say, hey, you working? You know, stuff like that. But no, I, I think thank God people call me. And then, of course, you're not going to want to answer this question, but I'll ask it anyway. If they can't get you, who do they call? Well, you know, it's funny. Lucather was the new me. Right. You know, when I met Luke, he was his baby. They came on board and came into town on a Richard Perry date. And Luke was the new Waddy, you know. So who knows? You know, there's so many guys. And now it's it's such a closed scene now. And, and aside from that, people record at home now. You know, so a lot of times you get a call and you're sitting, like Leland says, you know, I don't like sitting on the corner of someone's bed and playing the bass. <laughs> you know, but he's right. You know, you wind up doing some date for somebody in their house, you know. But but I was, I was eating lunch somewhere and uh, someone came in and said, are you Waddy? I went, yeah. And he says, my name's Jude Cole. And, uh, and I'd heard that name and I said, I, I've heard of you and. And he said, I'm, I produce Kiefer Sutherland. And we have no Kiefer forever. And, and we're doing a, a record. And 
I said, well, like, who's playing on it? And he named a few people, and he named Jim Cox, who was my favorite piano player in town. And Jim Cox is playing with you? Well, hell, I'll do it too then. You know, so I came and, you know, this was like last year. So you never know what's going to happen. Now. And, and Kiefer was a doll, and the songs were great, and Jude is great. And we had a ball. Funny thing with Jude, he used to be an artist himself yeah. on Warner Brothers. Yeah, right. So, uh... Now you also play at the bar down here too on Pico. Yeah, well, not we don't play there anymore, but we did like ten years worth of that, almost almost fourteen years, I think. And that was just something to do. Yeah. And why did you stop? Well, employment. You know, everyone's schedule started yanking people out of town. Next thing I know, I was on the road with Stevie for months. When I get back, my drummer Phil Jones was working with Peggy Young, Rick. My late, late dear friend Rick Roses was working for Neil. So you'd come back. A lot of times everyone's schedule was right. We'd all be here for right. months at a time. So we could do it, but then it became harder. So and harder. It's, it's done. It's not to be No, happening. no, no. We're actually striking it up uh, in August uh, at this place in Ventura. Plug. <laughs> Discovery Ventura. August 18th, be there. <laughs> okay. uh, rock and roll night. But, and also I've been playing with Danny Korchmar. Lee Sklar and Russ Kunkel, and Steve Postel, his name is. And we did, Danny got a, a record deal. A Japanese label wanted Kuch to do a record. So the, he got the old, the brothers together. <laughs> right. And we did it, and Danny said, look, it's got to be us to go play this stuff. Can't be anyone else. So we said, yeah, how great. We finally get to play in a band together. So that's what we've been doing. So we did that too. We just finished, we just went to Japan. And did uh, like 10, 11 days there. And we just played at the, the, a club. But schedule-wise now, again, with schedules, it's tougher. With Russell, he's in France right now uh, working for Cat Stevens. And then he's going to be on the road in August. And then I'll lose Leland at some point. But Danny and I are writing and Steve and we're writing songs and getting ready for autumn when we're all back together again. So we'll be doing that. So I have the two bands going. Okay. Now, in the 70s, in the 80s, before the days of cameras and phones, I would assume being on the road was, shall we say, a lot of fun. Yeah. Okay. But those days, granted, you're older and you're married, but generally speaking, those days are done for people on the road? What do you mean? I mean, uh, the the old dream, and this is, you know, uh, it may be a sexist dream, was the musician has a hard time communicating with people, speaks through his music, goes on the road and meets women and, and does drugs. Yeah. Do you find, you don't yeah, have to do drugs, but, you know. But most people did. I, the reason I say you do drugs is, yeah, you was, know, you're, you're play, you play from 8 to 11. It's going to take you at least, if then, to 3 in the morning to calm down. You're in the bus with the same assholes that you knew from like 10 years. You know, you do drugs just to cope. I think a lot of people. Yeah. But have you found that modern technology has affected being on the road? I mean, granted, you're older and you're married. Yeah, I would say, I would tell you this. I would bet you a young band would see it the same way it always was. <laughs> That's what I would think. Okay. I mean, we're older and we're married, but we, you know, we go out and we still have a drink, you know, sit around and talk about the old days or right. talk about the new days and talk about music. It's still music. Speaking, you know. of the, speaking of the old days, I always say, you know, we look at that period from 64 to 80 and then even MTV after that. Music really drove the culture. 
If you wanted to know what was going on, you listened to a record. Radio stations were not like they were today. The radio, the jock was giving you all your news, was really your best friend. How do you feel about the music scene today? It's hard for me. It's hard for me. I wind up, uh, I don't listen to a lot of new music. I hate to sound like an old dinosaur, but uh, I don't hear the kind of melodic music anymore that I grew up knowing that that was how you were supposed to write songs, you know? I mean, it was one thing to go from jazz and standards to all of a sudden there's Beatles and Stones writing great songs and then everyone else is trying to write great songs. But now the melodic, the melodic approach to songs these days is very nil, uh, very lack, lacking to me. It's either way too repetitive and simple, and repetitive is a great thing to have. You have to have repetition, but not the way it's done today. Or it's way overly exaggerated to where people are demonstrating their wonderful uh, vocal range. Yeah, Mariah Carey and the Malibu. Well, that, that, but even just some of the stuff. I, I, I have a hard time with, with it. With it. I, I love Muse. I think that's a great band, you know. Right. Uh, but they're not even new anymore. Right. You know what I mean? Absolutely. Uh, it's hard. Uh, it's hard for me. So I don't hear. I, I listen to a lot of older stuff. And the hip-hop? Do you listen to the hip-hop? I don't. Okay. I don't. I've heard some I really dug. Right. You know. And do you have hope? Or do you think we live through the Renaissance and it's not going to return? One never knows. I, you know, history repeats itself, right? That's what they say. Uh, it's been a long time coming. And I don't even know it's how it be could. a long time gone. That's right. <laughs> I don't even know how it could right now, you know. Right. Guitars have become almost meaningless in today's records and... Uh, it's tough. It's it's weird, but it's that it's that song structure that I miss that was so important to us when we were growing up, and that's what it was all about: writing a great tune, you know, someone something that you could sing, you know, instead of some of the stuff that's out there. I, I don't want to name right. That's I don't want to name anybody. That's why we can fill in the blanks ourselves. Yeah, yeah, you know. But I I don't like a lot of what I hear and. Uh, and I have to agree with Cooch about something you said about uh, that that uh, Barnum movie. Right. Uh, I don't dig those songs. I don't. Uh, I, and okay, I yeah. sat, Cooch, and Cooch. I, let me tell you, I didn't. It's funny because when we just went to Japan, right. the person next to me was watching this movie. I went, what the fuck? What is that movie? And I, and I saw Hugh Jackman. And I went, oh, I see. But I didn't watch it. But that's when I first became aware of it. And then Danny told me about we had back and forth. Yeah. Usually, Danny, you know, Danny is you know him much better than I know him, but he can be. I wouldn't say contrary, but he's not afraid to show a little bit of an edge. No, yeah, but he's warm underneath. But he slammed he me right away. There were two things for those people who may not be aware. There's this you know movie with a soundtrack called Greatest Showman, Greatest Showman and yeah. we are living in a world where if you look at the Spotify Top 50, it's all hip-hop. All you read about is hip-hop. But this album is unbelievably successful. It was number one in UK for 21 weeks and definitely the best-selling album of the year, I think, in America, even exceeding Drake. Now, 
it is an album, especially the single with, with the name of which I don't remember. They sang on the Oscars, I believe, has melody in it. It's exactly what you were talking about. No, it's not exactly, but it has, <laughs> it has, it has melody, but it's overstated. Uh, okay. Like I said to you, over exaggerated. Wait, 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 wait. It's, this is like writing about Greta Van Fleet. If you've heard Led Zeppelin, you say, hey, this is ersatz. By the same token, there wasn't that amount of communication. If you were listening to all the British blues bands of the late 60s or early 70s, people say, well, if you heard the originals, this you know, Robert Johnson, this is not the same thing. But what I feel, as I'm busy explaining and justifying myself here, <laughs> I feel with The Greatest Showman, my main point was there's an alternative to what everybody thinks is – the default music of today. The fact that Greatest Showman is successful shows that there are opportunities for other things as opposed to me sitting here and saying, oh, Greatest Showman is so great. Yeah. Well, that's true. I, I, can, I can go with you that far. But. Well, that's all I meant. You know, <laughs> but, as I say, you know, you write stuff. is one of the problems writing shit. You, if you were going to write, I have enough problems with this anyway. You're writing, you know, oh, this person's going to have a problem with this, so I got to add a sentence here. I got a sentence here. It ended up being, you know, everything. We're in, and what my point was just to so to illuminate that there's a world beyond hip hop. Yeah, okay? well, that's, that's and then the, when someone think. slams me, Danny, you know, <laughs> I just written it. And you hear from Danny, it's like eleven o'clock at the night here. You never. It's like. Oh, come on. I mean, it's like <laughs> I just wrote it and you know better. We're on the same team here. It's funny. But it's, you know, and it's always funny in email because, you know, arguments can get really oh, and, uh, and you can you can misinterpret someone's meaning so quickly in a in a written sentence instead of hearing them say it. It's well, ridiculous. The only thing, he was Cooch was indignant at my first <laughs> yeah. visit. You're really indignant about this? I mean, as we're sitting here, well, the greatest – I'm talking Sergeant Pepper. It's right. like, come on. Yeah. So he was so indignant, I said, fuck you back. Yeah, I know. Yeah. And, I, and I did that. <laughs> you know, we're getting into email style. I won't say that to somebody I don't know unless I know there's going to be consequences. I just did that to make him reevaluate where he was coming from. Right. Not, not to, like, make him pissed off. It's like, come on. But I must say, and I understand what you're saying about – there is a world aside from hip hop, right. and I'll, I'll grant that that's a very valid observation. But I went, I made a point of it before coming here. <laughs> I sat down and listened to all those fucking songs in that movie, and I went, and I, like I said, I, I hate to down, doubt or, or, or put down anyone's work. Any every work I'm is willing valid. to. Every, yeah, well, good. Well, I don't, I've been I don't care. Just, Let me just, put it this way. Just, I don't care for that music. Okay. First of all, you probably <laughs> listened to it more than I did. Yeah. Se secondly. Yeah, maybe seeing it with the picture would put it in perspective. That's right. Let me no, tell you, as songs, new. Well, the movie, I haven't seen the movie other than snippets here and there. No one seems to think the movie is any good. By the same token, there's this movie on Netflix about a kissing booth, which everybody says is shitty, but is also a phenomenon. So really? it's. You know, this this crosses over to news, too. Yeah. You know, on one hand, you have the people who are reading these news sites that people make up in their basement, the theoretical 400-pound guy that Trump is talking about. Yeah, right. And then you have the, you know, the, the, the big newspapers, and you say, well, what are they missing? But without going deeper into this rabbit hole, which I'd be willing to, but I'm not sure your audience wants to hear it, are you a gear freak? No. Not at all? No. How many guitars do you own? Well, the guitars aren't gear. 
You know what I mean? But, I mean, if that's what you mean. I, I, I don't own a plethora of guitars like some of my friends do. But I have quite a few. 40? I don't know if I have 40. I have, like, I don't know. I have, like, three J Gibson J200s. I have about four, maybe five Les Pauls. I have couple of Fender Strats. I have some Telecasters. I've got a bunch more acoustic guitars. I've got a Dobro guitar, uh, Hawaiian lap steel guitars. You know what I mean? I don't, I don't have a warehouse full of guitars. Well, okay. Let's put it and, that way. But I one, don't. I just remember when I played, you know, in the 60s when everybody played, every guitar, even if it was the same model, sounded a little different. Is that yeah. still the same today? Yeah, yeah. They and do. do you have one particular guitar that's your go-to guitar? Well, I've Came up playing my 60 Les Paul. Uh, I, I bought it from Steve Stills when we first met, stuff like that. And Why was he selling it? They just had this room full of guitars. And and I, at that point, I was, I was still playing my big jazz guitar, not not the L7. There's this thing called Super 400 that Frank Zappa was playing when I saw him in the village. It was this big old fat Gibson, and it was gorgeous. I said, that's what I want someday. And... Uh, so when I moved out to California, I got myself a Super 400. And it was great, but um, what are we talking about? <laughs> I forgot. The gear you were talking about. Oh, yeah. About. So, <laughs> and then we were rehearsing at SIR, and the only people there were Crosby, Stills, and Nash and my band. And I looked in their room, and there was like a circle of guitars all around the whole room. And I went, wow. And I was thinking Les Paul again. I was getting sick of the big box. So I went, Steve, would you consider selling one, any one of those guitars? He goes, why don't we just trade rooms tonight? You guys rehearse in our room, and we'll use your room and just try, pick whichever one you want. I went, really? <laughs> Great, man, fantastic. So we did that, and I went through all these Les Pauls and came up with this sunburst that was just gorgeous. And, uh, and I got that one. So that I used that on every record I did uh, forever, you know. And uh, I, made, I used to do what I called my phony steel guitar. And that's how I did a lot of sessions. Uh, just plug right into the board. That's why when you said gear free, I thought it meant like pedals and things like that because I don't use any. But uh, I would, You don't use any pedals? No, volume pedal, like a right. steel guitar. Right. But uh, I would plug right into the board and just, you know, put some reverb on it and play that way. And uh, that's the first thing I did like on uh, Randy's record. Uh, not on Short People, that's playing some slide, but... There's a song called Rider in the Rain on that great record, and I'm playing my phony pedal steel guitar in it. That's great. Randy loved it. And, and, uh, but so I used my Les Paul until it broke too many times, and I had to replace it, and now I play this other 1973 Les Paul. It's, 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 I call it a white one, but it's actually a gold top spray-painted white that I just found in this shop one day, and it's great. And will so, you take that on the road? Oh, yeah, that goes on the road. My, my 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 original Les Paul stays home. Uh, it's insured for a lot of bread. It's very valuable, and it's gorgeous. And but Gibson uh, made uh, a Waddy Wachtell model, a Wachtell Les Paul, and they copied my guitar exactly. My sixty, it's just sunburst, and it's beautiful. They did a great job. Okay, so will you play that guitar? Yeah, I use it. Yeah. Okay, so I use my is... white one and that one. Okay, and then how about amps? Amps I've been using, uh, this company called Blackstar, really sweet-sounding amps. I used to play everything. And when we did all the records in the, in the 70s and stuff, there was Music Man was the amp. 
And that was Leo Fender Leo's, after he was yeah, a Fender. That's right. And we had they were small enough to have them live in the studio. And I'd be here, Andrew would be here, right next to each other, and you have a little baffle in between, and and it was loud enough. But and then I went from those to my Marshalls and stuff like that, and and then Fender makes a great amp called a Vibro King. So I was using that for a while. Two of this those. This is a current or an old model? Yeah, it's it's current as meaning right within the last twenty years. Yeah. So uh, so I was using that. I was using two of those together, which is enough to like <laughs> shave you. Right. Really loud and very brittle. Speaking, speaking of which, how is your hearing? Uh, yeah, my hearing. I don't know why, but it's okay. You, so know? you don't have to wear the hearing aids or anything. No, I, and I, I'm not that good on. I do say. What a lot, like right. like my father. Huh? What? But uh, no, my hearing's surprisingly good. Uh, I don't know why that is. But uh, so, but these Black Star amps are beautiful sounding. So I've been using them lately. And then, greatest guitarist of all time. Hard to say that one. Well, who are your favorites? Well, uh, starts a jazz guy, Johnny Smith. If you know who Johnny Smith is. You know who that is? Not really, no. Johnny Smith was a jazz player who the, all the other jazz players said he's too corny and he's too fucking square, but this guy is the most incredible guitar player ever. And he wrote, and I didn't even know this for years, and it's funny, I just did an interview with the daughter of one of the Ventures, and that song, Walk, Don't Run, right. was written by Johnny Smith. Really? And I didn't even, I wasn't even aware of it. I had all these Johnny Smith records. And one day I was home and, and I went, Walk, Don't Run? And I looked at the Ventures record. It says, Jay Smith. I went, oh, this can't be. And I went and, and I played it. And it's this beautiful shuffle, really gorgeous little really? jazz tune. And uh, so I asked her, I said, how did the Ventures find that song? And she wasn't even sure. I said, someone just found it one day on a record and and thought it would make a good rock and roll uh, song. I thought that started with the Ventures. I didn't know there was... Well, it did, else. but it came through right. this guy, Johnny Smith. So anyway, Johnny Smith was my god-like idol. He was incredible. But uh, Jimi Hendrix was unbelievable, you know. Uh, Jimmy Page is fantastic. Uh, Keith is un unreal, uh, the best rhythm player in the world, and and some of his amazing leads too. But Mick was Mick Taylor is great. There's too many guys. It's just impossible to say a favorite. Well, I know. always thought of the rock guitarists. I thought that Jeff Beck was the best. Jeff is great, but he's but Jimmy Page can do amazing things too. So what he is, you know. Well, the only there was those these arms concerts. I don't know if you remember yeah, those. Yeah, you know. Let me tell you, it's funny you say that. Because I had never seen Jeff. Right. And I went to that show, and there he was playing, and he was fantastic. And it was great, and I loved it. His tone was beautiful. He's doing great. He got a good, good, good applause, you know. And then a few minutes later, Jimmy Page just walked out onto the stage. He didn't even have a guitar on. He just kind of came out, and Madison Square Garden almost self-destructed. It was like, what's happening? Oh, my God. And I could see Jeff backstage must have just been killing himself. Going, what the fuck do I have to do to get over well, with this Well, you know, guy? I saw this was uh, Ronnie Lane of the Faces about uh, these benefit concerts, multiple sclerosis. Yeah. And it had uh, all three of them. Clapton played, Beck played, and Page played with Paul Rogers. Yeah. 
And, and, and Pace LA, wasn't in good shape that night either. He was a mess. Right, right. In, in L.A., matter. I thought that Beck blew him off the stage, but, you know, we saw different shows. Well, like I said, Jeff played better. Right. But <laughs> it was like night and day, and it was a big, bright day. Let me tell you, when Page, when Page came out on that stage, and he was, you know, he was just getting over smack then and stuff. He was a mess, but... He was so cool. It was ridiculous. I mean, Jeff is an incredible player, you know, ridiculous. But at the same time, there's Jimmy Page is trying to get through. <laughs> he's got the double neck on. Right. Trying to get through Stairway to Heaven, and it's a mess. And his solos are a mess. His solos on records are a mess. But some of his things that he does are so brilliant well, on think- record. But what I was going to say was, at the end of this mess of... of uh, Stairway, all of a sudden, the guitar, he just takes the guitar off, and I said, what's he doing? And he just, here's the back end of it, and he, here's the double necks, and he picks it up like this, he grabs it like this, and he just like, like this, and held it like that, and it's straight up in his hand, held it like that over the audience. The audience is <laughs> just going insane, and so was I. I'm going, look at this guy. Where'd he learn that? That is the coolest thing I've ever seen. You know, he didn't have to do, he didn't have to play great, but Jimmy Page is a brilliant guitar player. Well, so also, he wrote that stuff, or the stuff that he and, didn't and lift. And produced it. Right, exactly. And produced it. And, I mean, you know, it's just some of those things that, you know, Over the Hills and Far Away, like right. acoustic part, What? where's that coming from? You know, that's amazing. You know, nobody can come up with stuff like that. I love, I don't know if you know the song, I'm Physical Graffiti, 10 Years Gone. Beautiful. At the end, especially. Right. His licks at the end over that figure. Right. So gorgeous. He's serious, man. Okay, just a couple since we're into the deep. I got to tell you, he came to the joint one night. Okay. Somebody said, Jimmy Page is here. I went, what? (laughs) Come on, you got to be kidding. He says, no, he's he's outside in the parking lot. I went, really? (laughs) All right, so I went out there and I see this white hair and I went, Jimmy? He turns out, yes. You know, he's the right. gentlest. Right, right, exactly, in real life. Yes, I went, I'm Waddy. He goes, of course you are. <laughs> How are you, man? And I said, oh, man, I said, I'm so thrilled that you're here. Do you, do you want to come play? He goes, no. He says, I'm just here to watch, man. I'm just here to watch. It was too much, man. It blew me away. Oh, yeah. We, we have those moments. I won't whip out mine, but it's not quite the same thing. But the one night I spent, it was after the uh, premiere of It Might Get Loud, the guitar movie. You know, it was him and Jack White, and The Edge was not there. You're the after party. And people want to talk, but he's so gentle, you can't imagine the yeah. same guy yeah. with these legendary stories. Oh, man. What about Eddie Van Halen? Eddie's a great player. Amazing right. guitar player. And then yeah. of records... Any specific records that stick out with you? You say Johnny Smith in terms of guitar player. Any great records you say, wow, this is just, you know, my favorite. Oh, record? You mean? Just anything. Well, I mean, yeah. I mean, you can start with Quarter to Three by Gary U.S. Bonds. I mean, New Orleans, I should say, not Quarter to Three. Quarter to Three was great, but remember where you, how, you, how you felt the first time you heard that song? Or Good Vibrations or, you know, the, I Want to Hold Your Hand or... No, I mean, there's countless incredible moments in our lives. We've been so lucky to live and to hear these things. I, I, I don't know. I mean, Take It So Hard, when we put that record out with Keith, that first single. Right. Are you kidding me? That's like, 
that's some badass rock and roll right there, man. That's some fucking serious rock and okay, roll. Okay, so at home, do you play music at this point? So, well, you know, somewhat. My wife plays more records than I do. You know, I, I on the road, I, I, I play music. I bother people all the time. You know, I have this Marshall thing. Marshall made this boombox thing. Right. It's great. So I'm backstage before shows. I'm blasting rock and roll all the time. But uh, at home, my wife takes over on, on the records. I, I'm usually just trying to learn, you know, some Hawaiian stuff or playing, working in my studio. You know, I do, a lot of times now you work at home. You know, people. So you're send actually you. recording at home. People send. Oh yeah, stuff? sure, yeah, yeah. How extensive a studio do you have? I have a. You couldn't record a whole band in it. Let's put it that way. You know, but you could record a couple of guys playing the guitars together, or guitar and bass, singer. You know, I don't have a drum room. It's a workstation, more you call it. Yeah, right. And you're pretty savvy with Pro Tools? I use Digital Performer, actually. Okay. Because uh, when I started doing scoring for film, Pro Tools MIDI was not happening at all. And everyone said, no, you got to use Digital Performer. And I didn't know anything about any of it. So Performer is where I went. And now I'm versed in Performer, so I don't feel the need to switch over. And how often will someone just send you something and say, put something on it? You know, often. I mean, I just got done doing that with uh, uh, Holly Knight, a great, right. great songwriter. And uh, it was funny. I did something for Holly a couple, about three years ago, maybe four years ago. And then she wrote to me and said, I've got another song I'm working on. And, and uh, which, could you put some guitars on it? And I said, sure, I'd love to. So I did. I sent them to her. She says, yeah, it's great, but it's not quite this and not quite that. And finally I said, Holly, and it's great, it, it's great when someone knows what they want, you know. It's either you know exactly what you want or you let someone you trust right. give you what they want, that what they think is right. And it works out both ways. But Holly said, eh, it's not quite. I said, Holly, why don't you come here? Because otherwise I'm going to be sending you stuff <laughs> right. for months you know, why don't you just come here and we'll just do it together. So she came out to my house and we met. We'd, we'd never met, you know. We'd, right. We'd done it this way, you know. I worked for Val Garay. I did several albums for him that way, you know. As a matter of fact, on Keith's last record, uh, I went to New York and played with him on some of it. But on some of it, they sent some of the tracks to me and I put stuff on it at my house, you know. So it doesn't matter where you are. So at this late date, anything you want to achieve or do before the Grim Reaper shows up? Well, I just want to continue being valid musically. And like I said, Danny and Russell and Leland and Postel and myself have this band now, and we've been writing. So writing good songs at this point and being able to perform them would be a great thing. And hearing, having people agree would be a great thing. Getting them heard, which is getting harder and harder when you're this old. But it's getting harder and harder without making a whole podcast about it. Even if you it used to be in the first part of the century, if you made something great, it would surface. Now you can do something great and it and it won't surface. It's hard to break through the noise. So if you're doing something, and that's the, not, not only the noise, I'm sorry, but it, uh, only the, the amount of output. There's just so much. Stuff. The barrier to entry is so low, which is why. 
I have a special deal for you to work on The Greatest Showman, too. But <laughs> yeah, good. Send me the contract. <laughs> exactly. No, it's as, long as, as long as Cooch and I write the songs, we're, we're ready. <laughs> okay. Yeah. But it's, you know, it's depressing and overwhelming. And one of the problems, you know, and there are a lot of people who say, hey, you know, all the good stuff, the stuff today is as good as it was yesterday. You go, no, it wasn't. It's not. It's, it's not. like we live through something. It's like just pulling a record out of my ass, like walk away, Renee. Great. Something you have to you hear once. It's got that feeling, even pretty ballerina also by the left bank. Great. It's like. Great songs. Okay, we could talk about tracks forever, but it's been so great hearing your history and talking about this. Wadi, thanks for coming. My pleasure, Bob. Thanks for having me, man. I'm so glad you asked me to come by. Till next time. All right. It's Wadi Wachtel with me here on the Bob Left Sets podcast. How great was that? I mean, I only knew Wadi from seeing him on stage at the Roxy in films, etc. Hearing all those stories, how he made it from there, in this case, Queens, Forest Hills to hear it, is just unbelievable. For those of you who lived through the era and those who didn't, I'm just sure it was astounding, even hearing the story of Werewolves of London. So, you can email me, tell me what you think. Until next time, it's Bob Lefsetz on my podcast, the Bob Lefsetz Podcast. Don't know exactly why